Perfect. All right. We've got to start off with a little bit of critical care, folks. But this is going to be critical care that's based on our brand new sepsis, surviving sepsis from 2012, which actually came out in the wonderful 2013. So that means it's responsible. you're responsible for it on your examination. I know I mentioned this in the groups yesterday with simulation, right? So, But we're going to talk about what are some highlights of the brand new surviving sepsis surviving sepsis consortium, right? This is big, right? All right, so you're standing, uh, um, um, you are working in the metropolis of? Excellent, a 54-year-old guy comes inside in the metropolis of Sioux Lookout um, with some, I'll do kind of similar to the case I did yesterday, with some shortness of breath. What three letters are you going to do first, guys? You're going to do your? ABCs, right? So A stands for? A stands for? A stands for? Air simplest airway assessment is either open or? Open or? Open or? Excellent, if my airway is closed, what am I going to do? I'm going to open it. Excellent. Give me some techniques to open up a closed airway. Chin lift, jaw. Insert an oral. There you go. Perfect. Excellent. Remember, guys, this examination is like the old LMCC part two. This is fair game. You guys feel me? You are going to, like, you could be given a station very, very realistically where they would expect you to do this. Does that make sense? So even though this might not necessarily come up on, you know, the, the, the SAMP portion of the examination, this is all fair game for that LMCC 2 Part 2 portion. Are we crystal clear so far? All right. Okay, so the guy, oh, he's kind of moaning. Doc, I'm feeling really sick. So what that tells us his airway is? Open. His airway is open. Okay, after A, what does B stand for? B stands for? Breathing. Breathing. What's my simplest breathing question? Open or? Oh, sorry, breathing. Yes or? No. Yes. Yes, sir? No. Yes, sir? No. Excellent. All right. This guy's breathing. Does that make sense? If he wasn't breathing, we know that we'd very quickly, we'd have to grab our bag end and likely start. What does our new ACLS guideline start? Come. Does that make sense? All right. So what's after breathing, right? R is C stands for? Circulation. What's my simplest circulation question, folks? Pulse. Pulse. Yes or? No. Yes or? No. Yes or? No. Excellent. All right. You don't feel a pulse? One, what does one neuron say to the other neuron start? Compression. There you go. Staying alive. That's what I could ask you that on the exam, and you could be in that situation where you're doing that. You know, in some ways, when I was studying the exam, it was a bit easier because I could put all that stuff behind me, right? Because I would say I already wrote my LMCPC back in October. Does that make sense? Right, but now it's like, oh man, that's fair game. Is that crystal clear? All right, excellent. So what are those four letters that we all... So this guy has a pulse. All right, so what four letters do you want to remember? O-M-I-P, is that correct, guys? Oh, excellent, right? So what does O stand for? O stands for... O stands for? Excellent. How are you going to give that oxygen, guys? 100% non-rebreather max. Does that make sense? Can you please get me the 100% non-rebreather max? Can you put it to the wall and set it to flush? Does that make sense? Excellent. M stands for? Monitor. Give me a monitor, folks. Non-invasive BP. Non-invasive BP. How long often are you going to cycle it? Five minutes. Excellent. As fast as we can. Does that make sense? All right. What else are you going to use? Cardiac monitor. Make sure what is on? Your? A SAC probe is on. Make sure it's cycling continuously as well, too. We're good so far? All right, I stands for I? IVs. IVs, right? The only thing better than one IV is? Excellent. If you can't get IV access, what are you going to do? I? I.O. Crystal clear, you've gotten tons of points just for doing that. Remember, still, walk inside the room, wash your? They watch that. Do they watch that, guys? They do. Right? They watch that, guys. Are you going to interview? Remember, in this particular situation, you might have another helper that's helping you. Are you going to, are you going to walk inside there? Get out of my way! Are you going to be like that? No, you still have to introduce yourself. Introduce yourself to the patient. If this guy's out of it or that, at least introduce yourself. You get points for that? Stand to the right. Is that crystal clear? 
get points for that. You've already gotten tons of points just by doing that. Simple. All right. So what are we going to do next now, folks? So we're going to be getting back some information. All right. So let's say this guy's tachycardic at about 115 beats per minute. Um, uh, um, his O2 saturation on 100% non-rebreather, let's say it's like 97, 98%. But you get that blood pressure back, folks, and his blood pressure is 60 over 40. So what are you going to do? Excellent. He needs a fluid bolus. Does that make sense? So fluid bolus. Let's run 100 cc's an hour. Are we going to do that? No. Are we going to do that, folks? No. Excellent. We're not going to do that at all, right? Because what is a bolus? It's you have to give a good amount of fluid, and you have to give it now. This person is hypotensive, and this 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 is a critical situation. So let's say you give him that fluid, right? You give him some fluid bolus. Blood pressure doesn't change. Give him another fluid bolus, blood pressure doesn't change. Give him another fluid bolus, blood pressure is still not changing. Right? Let's see you getting some temperature information back a little bit later. And his temperature, I think we used yesterday, 39.5. What are you thinking now? This guy could be? Excellent. So what are we going to do at this point, guys? People who had me, what are we going to do at this point? You Excellent. I have to think about a vaso? Presser, right? And what's now that the new, our surviving sepsis uh, um, guidelines say is our first line vasopressor that we use in sepsis now is? Norepinephrine. What did I say, guys? Everybody write down? Norepinephrine. What's our second line vasopressor that we can consider using is? Epinephrine. Is that crystal clear? Is dopamine, do we use that routinely? No. Right? Is that crystal clear? Orange likes it, though, right? Huh? Orange likes it? Yeah, orange likes it. A lot of people still like it because it's just easy and quick to make because it's the silver bag, right? You know what I mean? You know, to find this stuff, well, where's the level fed? It's up in the ORs. You have to send somebody to go get it. Does that make sense? Or it's not in the crash cart. Does that make sense? Whereas dopamine, they usually have those nice silver bags right there. But the thing is, is that it's not to say that that is wrong and then switch it over afterwards. Does that make sense? But if you want to get what is our first line we're going to use is norepinephrine. All right. So you get the norepinephrine going. So dopamine superior to epi? No, 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 yeah, for the second line is actually epi, right? You would not use dopamine second line. Does that make sense? You would just say one amp of That's contrary to everything. Nori. Huh? This is new. Eh? This is new. Surviving sepsis 2012, 20, 2013, so it's actually second line now is actually epinephrine. Does that kind of jive? So you would say one amp of norepinephrine? Yeah. Bag of 250, run it at 30 cc's an hour to start. Does that make sense? And then you could up it, you know, 60, 90 and stuff, depending on the response that you get according to the blood pressure. Is that crystal clear? Is it good so far? All right, so let's continue going, folks. All right, so this new surviving sepsis guidelines, which came out, they're actually, even though they're called 2012 guidelines, they actually came out in 2013. And one of them is that they define our goals, what we want to achieve in three hours and what we want to achieve in six hours. Right? So what do they say? And that's one thing new about new sepsis goals, because sepsis was always like flow charts. Does that make sense? But the problem is you never really had a lot of times associated with things, right? So first thing is that they want to they want to see about us giving enough fluid. And what is enough fluid, guys? 30 cc's per kilo. What is enough fluid, guys? Your bolus, if that person is hypotensive, your bolus is 30 cc's per kilo. Does that make sense? So that can be two to four liters on the average person. So that's not 500 cc's. CCs. That's not 250 cc's. Does that make sense? So they've put a number on it, right? And they've actually increased the number compared to what it was before. Is that crystal clear? All right. What else do they want us to do right away? Draw a lactate. What did I say, guys? Draw a? So that initial set of blood work that they want, they want us to draw a lactate with that. And we're going to talk about why that is important. 
and especially for rural medicine, why that is important. Is that crystal clear? All right. Draw a set of blood cultures. So blood cultures, pan culture the person, right? So do their urine culture, do their blood culture. Does that make sense? Right? And get the person on what? Anti? Excellent. You know what? There's a little thing called absolute mortality increasing of 7% every hour. Antibiotics are delayed in people who are really sick with sepsis. Now, who are the people with, who are really sick with sepsis that, have a, that, that tend to have really bad outcomes? Remember, these two groups. So people with a mean arterial pressure under 70. What did I say, guys? A mean arterial pressure under 70. And or, what did I say? And or a lactate greater than 4. What did I say, guys? A lactate greater than? So that, that's why they want you to think about the lactate up front. Because there's going to be some people that you're going to see with a mean arterial pressure of 86. So you're like, oh, that's not too bad. But a lactate of 12.8. Does that make sense? And they say that that person should make you think like this person had a blood pressure of 60 over 40. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear? All right, so new things with the sepsis guideline. We have some things where we want to get that done within an hour. At the latest three hours, you want to make sure that bolus is in, the person's pan cultured. At least uh, um, you want to make sure that that initial lactate has been drawn. And the person, not you wrote down antibiotics, but the antibiotics are given. given. They're in. Remember, this is not about writing down, it's not about ordering antibiotics. It says give the antibiotics. And it didn't even say that. It said antibiotics are given, which means that it's happened. It's done. Does that kind of jive? We're good so far? So what's our first line vasopressor now? We talked about it. So let's say I give that initial fluid bolus, which is how much cc's per kilo, guys? So I know an average person somewhere between two and four liters. So if I have a 180-pound football player, a pretty big guy, you're probably pushing that four-liter mark. Does that make sense? If their pressure does not come up, right? And the one thing you want to remember is a map of 65. What did I say, guys? You want it to come up to a map of 65. If it doesn't come up with a map of 65 with that fluid, what are you going to do, folks? You're going to start at vaso? There you go. And what vasopressor is first line? Norepinephrine. That's otherwise known as level fed. Let's use a pressure second line. So we use that if it's not working and we may consider adding or replacing it. What could we add and replace it? We could add and replace it with in sepsis with epi. Does that kind of jive? Crystal clear so far, guys? All right. Now, I want to tell you guys, let's look in the guideline. Who is the guideline up in their computer? Let's get Sue Lookout good. You guys want to get Sue Lookout good? Yeah. Let's read that. Let's read that. Let's read that. Who is the guideline up there? The surviving stuff. Just a, let's talk about the fluids that you can give. So what fluids are you going to give to bolus that person with? So what options do we have? Ringers? Lactate? Right? Normal saline. Someone read the guideline for me. Is there something else that they say you can consider giving as well too? Al? Albumin. Albumin. But you're like, no way. When was that? Does that kind of jive? Some people with severe sepsis, some people with severe sepsis. Now, they don't talk about amounts, right? I, I almost, I'll be honest with you, I don't use it that much, right? But it is an option. They say that you can use it. You can use it like part of your bolus can be the albumin. 
That's okay. So what percentage of like Usually it's the five percent. Does that make sense? Yeah. Five percent. Yeah. 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 Oh, like, that's the thing. It didn't, but you're going to use part of your, you can use, and that's what it didn't specify, right? You can choose to use part of your resuscitation volume at 30 cc's. Does that make sense? Per kilo, part of that can be albumin. If you read the guy that closely talks about that, you know that? Let's still look out. Is that kind of jive? We good so far, guys? Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Now, what does it talk about? Let's say you have that person, right? And let's say, like, you know, I should correct myself. Let's say there's also something else you have to assess, right? It's not just, oh, my blood pressure is good now. Now I can be okay. Does that make sense? Right? What is it that we also want to assess is the F word. Not that F word. What did I tell you the F word was? You have to assess? Flow. Flow. It's not just about pressure anymore, right? It's not just about, oh, I gave the person eight and a half liters, and now their pressure is a map of 66, so I'm good, boss. Because are there some people where you've actually brought up their blood pressure, but they still have crappy flow? If we had a little bit more time, I'd, I'd tell you my analogy on flow on this thing called, uh, you know, you're gardening and you're watering your plants. Does that make sense? Where your heart's like the pump, you know? Your circulatory system's like the well that the pump is getting the water from, right? And your SVR is like, you know, that, um, what's that thing called where you, what's it called? That thing that you use that uh, you attach to the end of the hose and stuff. And it's, yeah, the sprayer. Does that make sense? The nozzle. The nozzle's kind of like your SVR. Does that make sense? Right? And when, you, when the nozzle's open, it's, your SVR is really low, and when, you're, when, when it's open too much, and then, you know, if it's, too, if it's closed, then it can actually up your SVR. The problem is, is that you can have situations where your nozzle's closed, your pump still working, the pressure in the hose is okay, there's fluid in the tank, there's fluid in the well, but are the plants getting watered, folks? And the answer is, so what's going to happen? The plants are going to die. It's about optimizing things. Is that crystal clear? All right. So it wants us to really assess this flow. Now, what does the surviving sepsis guideline talk about? It talks about this thing that if people are really sick, so let's say they don't respond to initial fluid bolus or their lactate initially was higher than four, they want you to think about you really you have to deal with their blood pressure being low, but you also have to deal with, you have to start to assess their flow. And I always say in every patient you have to assess their flow. Does that kind of jive? And what they want you to do is this thing called, how many of us have ever heard of a mixed venous? Have we ever heard of that before? And what does a mixed venous involve? Putting down a central? Line. Excellent. And we like that in the sepsis guideline, we'll talk about doing a CVP. Does that make sense? And what does that involve? What does a CVP involve, right? For those people who did ICU, what do they do when they do a CVP? They put down a central? Line. Line. Ah, oh, like, central lines. Oh. <laughs> so much fun. So much fun to put down. Because then if you screw up, you get to put a chest tube. Down. There you go. You can practice a chest tube now. Does that make sense? <laughs> and you screw up and sue, look out. You burn down your chest tube. A couple units of blood. You're like, oh, I'm running low on blood now. This is not good. Right? So the official guideline will still talk about that. Does that make sense that you have to use the mixed venous? But it also mentions something else that you can use your lactates. What did I say, guys? Your lactates. Big trials are happening right now comparing lactate to mixed venous because you can see the advantages. A venous lactate is a hell of a lot easier to get than a mixed venous. Does that make sense? 
I'm a firm believer. There's two kind of schools of thought. There's Rivers' thoughts, and then there's this guy called Jones's thought. And Jones is a big believer in ultrasound. You, you, um, using your ultrasound to get your IVC collapsibility, and, and using your lactate to get an indice of your extraction. And you, because you can do those things pretty well in a lot of places, and you avoid the central line. Does that kind of jive? So what do you want to see? You want to see your lactate, what, going up or going down? You want to see your lactate going? Down. Down. Bam. Bam. <laughs> Does that make sense? Suppose if your lactate is not increasing. So, so sorry, suppose if your lactate is increasing. Bad. Is that bad? Suppose if your pressure has gone up, but your lactate is still increasing. Is that still bad? Oh, that's just a lab error. That's the metformin. No. Is that the metformin, right? No. We get metformin. <laughs> what else did I say can increase your lactate? Everybody say Ventolin. You know Ventolin can increase your lactate? No. Maybe this guy was a, maybe, maybe this guy's a marathon runner that we have. Right? Maybe he just ran a marathon. Maybe that's, lactate's a bit high, you know? Is that a problem, guys? Mm-hmm. And it, what it means is that you have to address that. So think about that. If I already have decent pressure, right, what do I need to do now? Is that that's when I have to start considering giving a iono, an ionotrope. Does that make sense? So ionotropes are things like dobutamine. Pure ionotropes are always vasodilating. So dobutamine and milrinone are vasodilating. What do they do, guys? Vaso? Excellent. So do we tend to give them in people with crappy blood pressures? Yes or no? Probably not. Does that make sense? But you can give them to people who still have evidence of a, of, a, of a high or increasing lactate. Does that make sense? And they have evidence of poor flow. Now remember, what, what else clinically, remember lactate is a blood test. What else clinically I can use for flow? Mentation, can that give me flow? Yeah. So let's, exact urine output, love it, right? Is that kind of jive? So I go, I give somebody, um, this person comes inside hypotensive and a big mess. I give them the, thir- the, the, the 30 cc's per kilo, and now they're producing a whack load of urine. They're telling me all about their life story and doing integral calculus now, where before they couldn't even wake up. Does that make sense? So do I have evidence of increase, and their blood pressure is good. Do I have, inc- do I have evidence of, of better blood pressure? And the answer is yes. Do I have evidence of better flow? And the answer is yes. So what I view these, survive, these sepsis guidelines is that they really place a lot of more emphasis on flow. Does that make sense? They say it's not just about getting the blood pressure up and then we can pat ourselves on the back and give us a good job for giving the right dose of phenylephrine. Does that make sense? All right, we're going to talk about kids, folks. Sepsis. What? What do you say? What? The kids get septic? Never. Never in a million... No, I'm just joking, right? <laughs> right? So kids can get... Kids can get very, very septic, right? Right? So I want you to remember this. So remember that younger kids, so under a month, years old, do we still want to do a lot of the same elements? Yes, right? We still want to make sure that we give them fluid resuscitation, that we get, they get, we get them pan-cultured when they just come in. Is that correct, guys? Right? That we draw a lac, draw lactate, right? Blood culture, that stuff is still important, right? Now, your initial volume of resuscitation fluids changes a little bit, right? So, in under a month, you usually start with 10 cc's per kilo, and usually greater than a month, that's usually when you can go 20 cc's per kilo. Does that make sense? So, that is still 20. Is that okay? Volume of fluid, slightly different. Under a month, years old, just think about like a sepsis under a month. Is that usually badness, guys? The problem is, is that sepsis under a month, 
kids can present not just vasodilated, but they can present vasoconstricted. Because little babies are kind of stupid. Does that make sense? That their autonomic system is kind of stupid as well? That sometimes, that instead of vasodilating, they actually vasoconstrict. Like, they want to do this much, and they end up doing this much, and they overshoot. And if all of a sudden, if you were to vasoconstrict right now, if you were to, everybody in this room were to take a crap load of cocaine right now, does that make sense? <laughs> Rob Ford, no, just <laughs> Does that make sense? Could we run the risk of dying? Yeah. Because what happens if it gets too high, what's actually going to happen to my flow? It's going to go down. It's going to go down. When people use cocaine, if I were to use a whole bunch of cocaine right now and my SVR would shoot through the roof, would my blood pressure be pretty good? Oh, my blood pressure. We can all agree. Would it be high, guys? Yeah. But how would my flow be? Would my flow to my brain, it would probably be really? Really bad. So just think about it. Kids at this young age group, normally shock in adults and sepsis is a vasodilatory shock. So normally go into what we call peripheral failure, right? Because your problem is your SVR gets too low. Kids under a month, they can have problems with the, sh the cause is their SVR gets too high. Is that crystal clear? Everybody understand that? So we still give them fluids, and we ask ourselves, is this kid any better, right? So how am I going to assess this kid is any better? Well, we could put in a central line and a child. Is that going to be very good, guys? Who wants to put in a central line and Sue Lookout and a three-week-old? Is that going to be very practical? No. Kids kind of have no neck. You ever notice that? Those babies, like really young babies, they have kind of no neck, and you're like, I don't even want to know how we put in a central. You know what I mean? Notice that they're just kind of... Exactly. Huh? Dr. Babula is the only one that will put a central line. Really? Only one. Wow, wow. Is that something like, who, who does Emerge here? Like, is that something that Emerge docs like to do is like put in central lines in three weeks old? Mm. That's like an ICU fellow at UFT that's doing that. Does that make sense? <laughs> so again, keep in mind, and they actually recommend, if you, if you do not do this on a regular basis, this is not a good opportunity to practice. Does that make sense? Because it's wrought with complications. What can I use clinically? What can I use clinically? Can I use mentation? What do I want it to do? Go up or down? Okay. Excellent. I want my capillary refill. I want it under two seconds. So it'll talk about pediatric specific goals, right? That are very practical and very clinical. I want urine output. Does that make sense? So I want one cc per kilogram of urine output. Does that make sense? I want to make sure this kid is producing urine output, right? I want to make sure that the kid has good pulses and there's no difference between the central and the peripheral pulses. So it's not like you're feeling strong carotids and no radial. Does that make sense? Is that normal? So you want to make sure that you're guiding your resuscitation efforts to get that. I want a kid, I want to get their normalization of their vital signs, a normalization of their lactate. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear, guys? Do they still need very early antibiotics? The answer is? Yes. Yes. All right. I don't want to dwell on this too, too much, because this is getting into the realm of neonatology, and the guideline is very, very you know, detailed, and it has a lot of detail that is going to be beyond the scope of what you're going to be on the family medicine exam, right? I just want you to mention that this first-line vasopressor in a child, let's say you give them all the fluid, you give them all that fluid, and they still, they don't improve with that fluid. Their blood pressure is not coming up. What are you going to give them? Dopamine. Dopamine. Does that make sense? Can you give a second 
Pardon me? Oh no, you're gonna you can give another bolus, right? But let's say you're giving all these boluses and your and your and your pressure is not going up. The kid's still looking like crap. You're getting objective assessments that flow is not improving and the pressure's not doing well. One or both of those things. You give your boluses. You don't just want, remember if the bolus is gonna work, it's gonna work right away. It may not get the kid back to 100%, but you're going to see an improvement. Does that make sense? Ask yourself this question. When you guys do the wards, if someone comes in really, really hypotensive because of hypovolemia, and you give them a leader, do they get back 100%? No. No, but don't they often get a little bit better? Yeah. So they, a lot of times they might get a lot better, but oftentimes they get a little bit better. So that's what you have to assess. Is this kid getting better? They're getting better with fluid. Give them more fluid. If they do not get any better with food, so if you start hearing, remember this too, because the guideline talks about this, crackles and rails, stop giving the... Does that make sense? Yeah? Are you also using D5? Pardon me? Are you also using D5? D5 not as a resuscitation fluid. Right. What I would use it as, I would use it as a maintenance fluid. Does that make sense? Once I give enough? And always, that brings up a good point, is hypoglycemia badness in kids? Very. Very, very bad. So what is the actual guideline recommends? Check the sugar. Does that make sense? Because hypoglycemia is bad. Just like when we talk about the diabetes guideline, like... So once you've done your initial 10 cc's, 20 cc's, yeah. you will, then you can switch to D5? Yeah, yeah, you can switch to some maintenance fluid. It's not pure D5 you're giving them, right? You're usually giving like D5 half normal saline or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Does that kind of jive? Once you think you've given them enough. But you're checking... What they're saying is, is that you want to make sure that you're checking glucose. Is that crystal clear? Are we good so far, guys? Dr. Crazy, what did you say for under one month? It's 10 cc's per kilo. Over one month, it's 20 cc's per kilo. Does that make sense? This is saline or ringers. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm not sure about I, I'm not 100% sure about the albumin. I know there was a couple trials that were done in Africa that actually showed beneficial effects of potentially albumin. I'm not sure in children, though, if, if that's still part of the recommendation to consider using albumin and stuff. So, yeah. Less than one month. Uh, yes, yes, less than one month. I didn't want to mention it, but less than one month, your first line, you actually use both, right? You actually use dopamine and dobutamine, right? I wouldn't worry about that too, too much because that would be very, very unlikely to come up on your exam. Does that make sense? Why do we add both the dopamine and the dobutamine under a month? And the reason is, is because remember we said under a month, kids can present vasoconstricted. And what is dobutamine, guys? Is it exactly? It's a pure what? Pure what? Ionotrope. And pure ionotropes, vaso? And because these kids can't talk or can't do much, does that make sense? And it's hard. We say, well, let's give them something that vasoconstricts and something that vasodilates. Does that make sense? We good so far, guys? How we feel about sepsis? Feel good? So keys ideas are fluid. I could just get it. Fluid, flow. Fluid, flow. Everybody say that. Fluid, Flow. Flow. No. Crystal Claire? So what pressure do you use? What do you use in kids? Usually first line is actually dopamine. Does that make sense? So that's something in children. Usually your first line vasopressor in a child. Greater than a month is just dopamine to start. Does that make sense? Then you ask yourself, is this warm shock or more cold shock? And if it's more cold, you'd maybe switch your add-on epi. And if it was warm, warm, you might, you may consider using some norepinephrine. Does that make sense? But usually in kids, we still use dopamine. It doesn't, because I'm looking at the guidelines right here, and it doesn't say anything. Yeah, it does. If you look, there's a beautiful... There's yeah, there's a nice flow chart. Yeah, there's an algorithm. And that's, how, that's what you want to know. Dose range says dopamine, yeah. 10 mics per kilogram. Yeah. And then it doesn't have epi. It does, yeah. 
Does that kind of jive? Is this the 2014 one? Yeah, where are you looking for? If you look on page, I don't know, look on 616 in the guideline. Yeah. Surviving sepsis guideline. Yeah, 2013. Yeah, surviving sepsis guideline. So you can see it there. It, I like that. Use that flow chart. Does that make sense? That's what I use, practically speaking. Does that make sense? Are we good so far, guys? Is that useful? Yeah. Because sometimes the guideline, like when you look at the bullet points, it's not going to tell, because it just tells you, we, we don't really have any evidence to support one vasopressor as opposed to, oh, so what, do you, what are you going to do? Does that make sense? Because oftentimes when it lists that, it basically said there's no, but you still need an approach. Does that kind of jive? Do we have to know about the, the steroids? Well, th that's, a, that's a good question. So steroids in sepsis, when would you consider steroids in sepsis? In, exactly. <laughs> Why not try that, right? So they talk about if someone has fluid-resistant, catecholamine-resistant sepsis, give them some corticosteroid. Does that make sense? Why not? Does that kind of jive? We used to use corticosteroids a lot more frequently in sepsis, and now they're kind of taking a they're kind of taking a much more back back step. How many people remember this stuff called activated protein C? Remember that? Yeah. Back in the day, when I was in residence, well, it wasn't even that long ago. We were given this stuff. They were doing all these trials. It's garbage. They took it off the market. Don't even write it down. I don't even don't even know what it means. Does that kind of jive? Is that useful, guys? Yeah. That guideline you need to know. Yeah. Is that crystal clear? You see, when you actually read these things, you're like, crap, we can actually use albumin? You know what I mean? We can actually use these things actually, these things actually change? Does that kind of jive? You can. Huh? Volume two. People. Ah, oh, what about volume Not for oh. septic shock, only for traumas. Yeah, for tra traumas, you can consider. For sepsis, don't even remember what volume is. <laughs> don't write that down for sepsis. Does that make sense? Because you read the guideline, they'll actually recommend against it. Yeah. Do not use any hydro. So I didn't even. Volume Does that kind of jive? And actually, my first line thing for trauma is actually blood. Right? If you have a poly, you want to give them blood, right? Like they need blood and they need it now, right? Because they're losing blood, you want to give them blood. Because the problem is, is that you can get this coagulopathy associated with, with, with if you're losing blood, you know what I mean? You're giving lots of isotonic saline, you're actually diluting out all their factors and all their platelets, right? And you want them to clot, right? So a lot of places now are replacing blood with blood, right? So, and it kind of makes sense. If you're bleeding because you have a pelvic fracture, you know what I mean? Because you lacerated a femoral artery, you probably want to replace that blood with actual blood again, right? ATLS is suggesting max of two Yeah, yeah, a max of Yeah, exactly. One liter Exactly, considering. So before it used to be, give more fluid, give more fluid. And we're moving away from that. And actually the current thought now, yeah, the current thought now is that you probably want to give blood, right? And it makes sense. If you're, if you're fine, you're in your car, and you get in an accident, and you have a hemothorax, you just lost a whole lot of blood. Does that make sense? So if I give you a lot of isotonic crystalloid, you're not replacing the stuff that's in the blood, and you can actually get a coagulopathy. Does that make sense? And the problem, what do you want the blood to do? You want it to clot. So if I'm giving you a lot of stuff that's diluting out all your clotting factors and all your platelets, could that potentially be badness? Exactly. Can potentially be badness, folks. Sepsis, this is important. 
That's why I spent a little bit of time on it, right? Now let's talk about some things that can get you septic. Let's talk about sinusitis. New things for the ISDA side, right? We're going to talk about a few infections. We're going to give some rapid fire. Does that kind of job? Because I, we got to get through stuff, right? So can you get septic from a meningitis? And the answer is, can you get septic from a sinusitis? Can you get septic from a community-acquired pneumonia? Do you have to know about community-acquired pneumonia? Do we have new guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia in children? Everybody say yes. Huh? <laughs> Excellent. These are published by the International Disease, Infectious Disease um, um, Society of America. We talked about this. We actually had a mini session in Suluka, and I'm going to publish it on the podcast, so I don't want to dwell on this too, too much. I'm just going to mention some of the salient points. That one of the things is that they've really put in managing the pneumococcus for kids with pneumonia. What did I say, guys? Managing the pneumo? They put a lot less emphasis on these atypicals. Does that make sense? Because the problem is this. Azithromycin, in a lot of places, is now resistant. A lot of the pneumococcus is resistant to the azithromycin. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear? So you got outpatients, most of the time, irrespective of the age, you're using amoxyl. Does that make sense? You can consider if you think this kid has clinical features, or if you think this person has clinical features of an atypical pneumonia, you may consider adding a little bit. And again, we talk about this a lot more in the other podcasts, but I just want to mention it, right? You can consider using a, 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 a macrolide, but they're kinda, you can kind of see in the guidelines that they're really starting to take a back seat. What do you do for inpatient management in kids, right? Inpatient management of kids now is now dependent on how many times the kids receive their what vaccination, guys? Pneumo? Yeah, their pneumococcal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, um, pneumococcal vaccination. Does that make sense? So they've gotten under three doses. They're not considered fully immunized. So when do most kids in Ontario get pneumococcus? Well, it's going to vary. You're not, you're not going to remember. Everybody repeat after me. Are you guys going to remember the Ontario vaccination guidelines? No, you're going to remember the NACI guidelines. What did I say, guys? The? NACI. NACI is the national association that gives their recommendations to provinces on this is what you should do for your vaccination schedule. It's pointless to know the Ontario ones. Because Ontario is just going to pick and choose what it likes. Does that make sense? Just like Saskatchewan. Just like the plains of Alberta. Does that make sense? So you want to know the NACI guidelines. Now in Ontario, okay, you know, kids might get a pneumovax at two months, may get a pneumovax at four months, may get a pneumovax at six months. So we know at six months of age, most kids are going to be fully vaccinated, right? About six months. Does that make sense? Now, different provinces are going to distribute these things slightly different. I'm not going to get in a debate in that, right? You're going to read your NACI guideline. Write that down, put a circle and square around it. I'm not going to talk much about vaccinations because, honestly, you just need to read the NACI guidelines and know it for your exam. Does that make sense? But good so far? So what are you going to do, guys? Under six months, if they're sick enough to bring into hospital, right? If you're sick enough to bring into hospital, you want to see about using a third-generation cephalosporin, right? Because under six months, they're not likely fully vaccinated. Does that make sense? Over six months now, what have they now said? They said you can use ampicillin, you can use IV ampicillin, you can use something that covers the pneumococcus. Does that make sense? And unless you have a suspicion that this is a mycoplasma, that's probably all you need. Because when they look at it, the problem is, is that the badness with pneumonia, like the empyemas, like the respiratory failures, like the severe stuff, usually happens way more frequently. Does that make sense? Way more frequently with pneumococcus than it does with mycoplasma. Does that make sense? Are we crystal clear, guys? CPS guidelines, no, the IDSA guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. 
International Disease Federation of... Is that crystal clear, guys? All right, I just mentioned, I talked about this in the previous podcast. Just kind of keep that in mind, right? So now what they're doing is, is they're doing a lot more... Yeah. Sorry? I was saying she can find it to go to the Journal of... Uh, Family Practice will have it. Yeah. Isn't that a great journal? Oh, I can't say that on the podcast. It's not a great journal. <laughs> I can't say that either. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Does that kind of jive, guys? All right, folks. All right, is meningitis a type of infection? Is meningitis a type of infection, guys? Yes. Is it potentially badness? Yes. Good. Do I want to catch it early? Yes. Good. I want to catch it early. It can make people... Give me some bugs that can cause a meningitis. So I have bacteria, I have viruses, I have funguses. Does that make sense? So give me some bacteria. Strep pneumo. What else? Listeria. Love it, right? Greater than 50 immunosuppressed. Listeria, right? Add some ampicillin, right? Love it. Give me another bug. Neisseria. Yeah, Neisseria, right? H influenza, right? Right, so good. We have some bugs that can cause that. What is a, what is a risk factor for meningitis? I would ask you that on the exam. What's a risk factor for meningitis? Think about something. Let's say you're like, oh, man. Well, yeah, head trauma, love it. Neurosurgery, love it. VP shunt, right? Let's say your kid just got a VP shunt put in for your hydrocephalus, love it. Does that make sense? One of the most popular ones is actually sinusitis. Does that make sense? Because you can get contiguous. Remember, there's some thin bones that are, you know, just at the top of the sinus, right? So sinusitis can be a risk factor as well, too, right? We good so far? All right. What are some signs and symptoms of a meningitis? Headache. Good. Can't see a headache. Nuco-rigidity. Yeah, nuco-rigidity, fever. Vomiting, possibly. Vomiting, possibly. Are these things like, this guy's a headache meningitis. Are they that good? No. No, right? You know, they're limited. Oftentimes, you, get, you make it a little bit better if you combine things. Actually, a pretty good one to remember is shake accentuation. Does that make sense? So it's, it's not very good if it's positive, but if it's negative, the person probably has, unlikely has meningitis. So it's shake, shake accentuation, right? So when they shake their head, does it accentuate the headache, right? So again, lots of non-meningitis things can do that, but it can be one of those things with a pretty good negative prediction value that this person probably doesn't have a Rickroy meningitis. So it's one of these things like a D-dimer. It's only useful if it's negative. Is that crystal clear? But we don't, do we have any smoking bullets for diagnosis? Not really. Does that make sense? All right. Okay, so what investigations? Okay, I think this person has a meningitis. What am I going to do, guys? Like... Okay, so I'm going to do blood work. I'm going to do blood cultures. Am I going to do my AB? Like that. Because people with meningitis, what can they have? What's a complication of meningitis? Everybody say seizure. What did I say, guys? Seizure. What did I say, guys? Seizure? Seizure. People present with fevers and seizures, could they have meningitis? Oh, yeah. Kids who present with fevers and seizures, they can have meningitis? They can also have encephalitis. Does that make sense? Is that badness, too? What bug causes an encephalitis? Give me a bug. Virus. Excellent. Herpes. Is herpes simplex and encephalitis, could that be very, very badness? Super badness? Badness? Very, yeah. You know, herpes simplex and encephalitis in a kid is not good. Not very good. All right. So what am I going to do, guys? Right? I know I want to get an LP. I want to get a sample of this fluid so I can send it off for culture. Keep in mind that they're actually moving from a culture diagnosis to actually a PCR. Does that make sense? Like they're actually growing this stuff up via PCR. Does that make sense? So, but anyway, you know, we want to take that LP. What kind of what what sort of changes in the LP can be suggestive of a meningitis? You're not going to have to know numbers, right? But just general things. Good. Okay. So it kind of depends on the type of meningitis, right? 
Let's say a bacterial meningitis. What kind of things might you see? So you're going to see a higher protein. What about glucose? It's going to be low. it's going to be low, right? Because the bugs are going to be all metabolizing, uh, m metabolizing things. Does that make sense? Was there a level for like two-thirds? Oh, you know, I would just say the lab. Right? Uh, yeah, I just say the lab. Now, there's articles you can look at looking at, you know, the ratio of glucose in the serum compared to the ratio of glucose in the, in the CSF and those types of things in kids and different ratios and stuff like that. You can read that if you'd like, right? All right, you're going to see some white blood cell to count, right? So what are you going to get right away? Are you going to get back your culture? No, you're not going to get back the culture. You're going to get things like your cytology back. Does that make sense? You're going to get things like your biochemistry back. You're going to get things like your gram stain. So if I list you th what three things can you get from your LP, you can get, you can get, uh, um, you can get right away, right? What is one? I can, get a, can I get a gram stain right away? Yes. Can that give me sometimes some useful information? Yeah. Doesn't mean if it's negative, the kid doesn't have anything. But man, if you see if you see gram negative rods in that seat, you're going to be like, "Holy crap, what's going on?" Or you start seeing diplococci or 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 or, or, or gram positives in chains and clusters, right? Can that give us some useful information? Does that make sense? All right. So you can get cytology, you can get back your gram stain, and you can get back to your biochemistry, right? All right. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going we're gonna to go. We're going to get that LP now. CT before. I thought I'm going to merge. With CT before. Can we? <laughs> One CT and. Good, good. So like it. If you, because the problem is, is that oftentimes we say, okay, guys, if we say that we need to do a CT scan on everybody, what ends up happening? Okay, the CT scan's busy with the trauma that we have, so that little kid has to wait. Does that make sense? Or that adult has to wait. Does that kind of jive? So it can delay what? Anti? And we know antibiotics, you probably want to start them relatively quickly. We can all agree on that. Does that make sense? We don't want to see massive delays. So the question is, if you're seeing where you have evidence of intracranial pressure being up, or this person could have a lesion, could be, have with some mass effect, i.e. an abscess. What did I say, guys? I-E-N? Abscess. I, maybe this is TB meningitis and this person has a tuberculoma. Does that make sense? So if this kid is seizing 15 times, does that make sense? Uh, um, I'm probably going to want to do a, uh, 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 um, um, a CT in that kid, right? Because I want to see, do they have something else going on? Am I going to delay antibiotics waiting for that CT? No. It means I'm going to do the CT before the LP in that case, but am I going to delay the antibiotics? The answer is no. If they don't have any evidence of papilledema, if they're otherwise neurologically normal, if they haven't had a seizure, if they're not high risk, i.e. immensely immunosuppressed, does that make sense? They're not coming inside with a blown pupil? Do you necessarily need that CT? And the answer is no. Is that crystal clear, guys? Nice little meningitis guideline performed by the IDSA. Does that kind of jive? Seizures equals CT. This is the thing. In a child... If, if you have recurrent seizures under six months, you, 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 need to, you need to do some, because what are you concerned about in a kid? Is this just a febrile seizure? Does that make sense? Remember, what do we say about febrile seizures? Six months to six years. Does that make sense? So you have a two-month-old with a seizure, you know, that's, like, that's calling in a bit too quick. You know what I mean? Like, why? Does that kind of jive? Yeah, four-year-old, recurrent history of febrile seizures. Yeah, you're not going to CT that kid for that reason. Does that make sense? Does that make sense with everybody? Is that crystal clear? Yeah.
Okay, excellent. Ah, sorry? Or only in TV. Well, that, that's a very good question, right? So what... Yeah. Yeah. So what about that? Steroids. So kids, what's the evidence for steroids? Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's the thing. So we know in tuberculosis, evidence for steroids, if you're concerned that there's an abscess in the brain or something that's increasing the intracranial pressure or something like that, steroids, right? If that's an infectious process for that, probably a beneficial thing, right? But that's not the case most of the time, right? We can agree on that? Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do? Problem is extremely controversial in kids because the problem is the one that it kind of helps with is the hemophilus. And that's with hearing loss. And the problem is a lot of kids are vaccinated against hemophilus, right? So the thing is, no steroids under six weeks. We just don't have the evidence for or against. So you, if I give you a two-week-old that you're doing the issue, you're not going to give steroids. Does that make sense? After that, it's really by a case-by-case basis. Does that kind of jive? Because the one that it helps the most in, a lot of kids are vaccinated for against. Or vaccinated against. What about adults? Steroids in adults. What have you guys seen? What do you guys see? How many people here do emerge? What do you guys see when they come? Yeah, they'll give them. Again, now, let me ask you guys a question. If the steroids are to work, they have to be given before the antibiotics. Or, yeah, before or at the same time of the antibiotics. So, if this is, hi, I got the antibiotics three and a half hours ago, do you give steroids? What's the answer? No steroids. Because if you are going to give steroids, they have to be given before at the same time as the antibiotic. If they're given after, or if you're answering the question like that, or if the person already got them, does that mean already got the antibiotics? And it's longer than 15 minutes ago? No steroids. Do you use dex? Yeah, dexamethasone. uh, Yeah, there's more, and it's a lot longer lasting. Does that make sense? A lot, lot longer lasting and stuff. And the studies have been really been done with dexamethasone. Four yeah, four milligrams. Well, what's the reason you can't give it after? No, it's just because they, they're concerned about it affects the penetration of the antibiotics into the CS. Like, you, you, you basically, it's not really, it's that you want them given at the same time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. If it's given, if the, if, the, if the antibiotics are given five hours ago, then you're not, this is, not, this is a mute point. You're not giving the dexamethasone. Does that make sense? Because they're only useful if you do decide to give them, to give them at the same time. Or earlier. Does that make sense? Yeah. I asked Dr. Gamble about this, and he said when you give it, you might sell and have a lot of information, that's why you want to give it before the antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'm not sure they, they have. I read about 15 different... I've heard things about the, mem- the, the meninges, and it affects their concern that it's going to affect the penetration of antibiotics into the meninges, because if your meninges is kind of inflamed, you might get better penetration. You know what I mean? So, exactly. I'm, I'm not exactly sure which definition I agree, which reason I believe or so. Does that make sense? What about adults? Do we routinely give them an adult? The question is very kind of controversial again. The ISDA seems to kind of say that there's probably more evidence to give them an adult. The problem is, is that the, the, the studies were done on people who were like, a, like, we know that it probably benefits the people with a low GCS maybe a little bit better. So if I have somebody with a normal GCS and they just have a regular run-of-the-mill meningitis and they're not that sick, are they going to benefit as much? We're not sure. Does that make sense? But they tend to suggest that, you know what, it's, 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 not, it's not an unreasonable thing to consider. But if you're giving the steroid, it has to be given at the same time as the antibiotic. Does that make sense? If this was the antibiotic was given six hours ago, either way, we're not giving the steroid. 
And again, pediatricians, this is a controversial area in pediatrics. Very, very controversial. Let me talk about this thing. You have to consider this on a case-by-case basis. Because the problem is the big one that, it, that, that... Now again, this is for your bacterial meningitis. This doesn't apply for brain abscess. We give steroids to those people. Does that make sense? Doesn't apply to TB. We give steroids to those people. The thing is, is that that group with the toxoplasmosis brain abscess or the TB brain abscess is not nearly as common. Does that make sense? We crystal clear? All right. Let's keep on going, folks. We got to go. We talked about meningitis. Okay, so when we talk about brain, okay, we talked a little bit about pediatric pneumonia, but a lot of that pediatric pneumonia stuff is on the last podcast. I just kind of mentioned it so you guys keep that in mind. Adult pneumonia guidelines, right? Basically, they haven't changed. They're due for an update next year. So it's essentially the same as it was before. And you can listen to the last podcast. Does that make sense? All right. Some interesting thing. What nice little Emerge article came out? Not too bad. Not not about relating on the curb 65 score. Remember when we talked about adult pneumonias? One of the things we have to do is what's that word? Risk stratification. You can use curb 65 or CRB 65. The problem is curb 65 doesn't work well for aspiration pneumonias. What do we say, guys? Aspiration. Aspiration pneumonias can account for up to 15% of pneumonias, and we know the scoring system does not work well for them. People with aspiration pneumonia don't tend to do very well because of the underlying process of why they aspirate, right? If you have end-stage Parkinson's disease and that's why you're aspirating, you run the risk of not doing very well because of this pneumonia. Does that make sense? All right, so people with a CURB-65 score, you remember confusion, urea, respiratory rate, what's their blood pressure, it allows you to risk stratify. Remember to ask yourself the simple questions, folks. What are the simple questions? Can this person take PO meds? What do I say, guys? Can this person take? PO meds. Right? Because you're not going to send them, even if they have a CURB-65 score of zero, if they're puking their guts out, does that make sense? You can't just say, here's your prescription for your amoxicillin. Does that make sense? Or here's your prescription for your macrolide. Because what's likely going to happen? They're going to puke. So ask yourself, can they tolerate PO meds? Do they need oxygen? Is oxygen part of CURB-65? No. Right? So if you're seeing that person, yeah, they can still have a low CURB-65, but they need a couple liters of oxygen. So do you want to send them home if they need a couple liters of oxygen? No. So those are people that who have normal CURB, people who could have normal CURB-65 or low-risk CURB-65 scores. You always have to remember that Journal of Family Practice has an amazing article about that, right? It was from 2008, but the guideline hasn't changed since then, right? It's due for an update this year or next year, right? right, What options do I have to have? Well, for people who have a CURB-65 score of 0 or 1, those people I can consider. What did I say, guys? I can? I can consider outpatient management. Provided that they're not nauseous enough where they're not tolerating an oral medication and they're not on any oxygen. How I can fool people on the exam all the time is I say you have this person and they're nauseous and they're on one liter of minute to keep their SATs above 94%. Does that make sense? And they desat when they go off, right? Is that crystal clear? All right, so you can consider outpatient management. You have to ask yourself, the first question is, what's this person's risk of drug-resistant pneumococcus? What did I say? What's their person's risk of? Drug-resistant pneumococcus. Who gets drug-resistant pneumococcus? People who are on antibiotics before. People who've gotten antibiotics in the last one to three months. People who have, like, COPD and heart problems and who are otherwise sick with systemic conditions. Are we crystal clear, guys? Those are the people that are more likely going to get drug-resistant pneumococcus. We good so far? What are you going to do for them? What could you consider using for them? Well, I want to give agents that are going to cover potentially drug-resistant pneumococcus, and those are your respiratory fluoroquinolones. Does that make sense? 
So I have a COPD -er with a pneumonia who's good enough to be an outpatient. Does that make sense? Maybe had an exacerbation and they were on some, what's another risk factor? Everybody say steroids. What did I say, guys? Steroids, steroids a couple months ago for their COPD. Exacerbation. Remember, a big article came out for COPD. COPD. This is a big year for COPD. How many people know what ground-changing things came out for COPD? For one, was a course of steroids you can give. So probably as little as five to seven days of a low-dose corticosteroid, 40 to 50 milligrams is probably all you need. Not the 10 to 14 days that the guideline recommends. But again, you for your exam still write what the guideline recommends. Does that make sense? But that's what it happens. And a big article for COPD came out looking at mucomist and acetylcysteine. Does that make sense for potentially decreasing exacerbation rates in COPD? But again, don't write that on your exam. That goes in the... Where does that go, guy? The... There you go. That kind of jive? Or is that going to go in the crypt? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it like that. Exactly. Let's say the person now, so that's for people, drug-resistant pneumococcus. Let's say, let's say now the person doesn't have any risk factors. They don't have COPD. They're not sick. They don't have heart disease. You know, they haven't been on antibiotics in the last three months. They're otherwise healthy. What could you give them? Right? You could give them things like a... You give them things like a macrolide, but you want to make sure you consult what? Remember, a lot of guidelines now are saying your choice of anti um, antibiotic are dependent on local? Resistance. Excellent. I would consult my local resistance. I would consult my local antibiotogram to see what's my rate of, of azithromycin resistance to pneumococcus. Because if my rate of azithromycin resistance is higher than 30%, you might not want to use azithromycin. Does that kind of jive? Or use azithromycin and something else, like amoxyl. Does that kind of jive? Crystal clear so far? All right. Let's rock on. Okay, so let's say the person, you're thinking about bringing them in, they have a corp 65 of two or greatest, you're like, okay, I'll bring you into hospital, right? Where are the two places in hospital you can go? You can either go to the IC, or you can go to the floor. Maybe go to the ICU or the floor. Let's talk about the ICU. Well, let's talk about the floor first. Does that make sense? All right, so you're taking this person. You're bringing them to the floor. Does that make sense? The other thing you have to ask is the P. The B, the, 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 one of the P's, something called pseudomonas. Does this person have risk factors for what, guys? Pseudomonas. What, guys? Pseudomonas. Everybody say it. Pseudomonas. Other risk factors. Give me some things that make you risk factors for pseudomonas. This is how you want to think about it. You want to think about it. Who gets pseudomonas? Yeah. Excellent. So structural lung disease, COPD ears, right? Think about when you look at an X-ray and you say, oh my God, you should be dead. Does that make sense? Probably they're a risk factor for pseudomonas. So COPD, bad COPD, bronchiectasis, cystic fibrosis, those types of things. What do those people always get? We always give them cortico? And we always give them anti? There you go. So what is Pseudomonas loves? It loves structural lung disease with a little bit of antibiotic there to kill off all the, 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 kill off all the germs that don't know how to have a party. Does that make sense? Not like it. It knows how to party. And a little bit of corticosteroid just in there just to keep the immune system at bay because those neutrophils, they can just, they just ruin the party. They just, they're so, you know, they don't, they don't know how to party. I know. We want to form this abscess party and they just want to cramp our style all the day. You know what I mean? They're worse than the police. Do you understand? <laughs> Does that kind of jive? Are we here treating pneumonia or acute exacerbation COPD? Oh, no, pneumonia still. We're still talking about pneumonia. All right, remember, COPD exacerbation and pneumonia are different, right? 
having COPD and being on corticosteroids, having exacerbations, having have being on antibiotics in the last or in the previous three months, being on, those things put you at risk of having pseudomonas. Does that make sense? So if I'm bringing you to hospital, I have to use things. And let's say you start to have some of those risk factors. I have to make sure that I'm treating you with something that covers pseudomonas. Does that make sense? Well, every antibiotic covers pseudomonas. Right, guys? No. Yeah, so fluoroquinolones, right? And certain beta-lactams, right? So what, what beta-lactams can cover? Right, yeah, so piptazo can cover it, right? Right, ceftazidine, right? Remember the two, ceftaz, piptaz? Does that kind of jive? You might want to combine them. Does that kind of jive? You're assisting yourself. What's my chance that this is pneumococcal? Wow, you have a person with severe COPD with six exacerbations per year, which comes inside with a CURB 64, CURB 65 sore, and meropenem. Yeah, and astrianam, yeah. There's a few bugs. There's a few ones, right? There you go. There you go. Does that sound okay? Exactly. Is that crystal clear, guys? What is that? Moxie? I, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I've never. I've moxifloxacin is it, that's avalox, right? So moxifloxacin has the advantage that it's not renally clear, so you don't need to dose adjust it in renal yeah. failure patients, right? It's super expensive. Uh, and it's very expensive. It's often not covered. Um, the thing is, it has anaerobic coverage, right? So it's one of the few fluoroquinolones that actually has some anaerobic coverage, right? Where normally they don't. I don't know though if it's that. I think about levoquin. I think about levofloxacin, uh, uh, um, um, cipro, those types of things. When I'm thinking more pseudomonas, I don't know offhand if 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 moxifloxacin does. Yeah. I know that we tend to not use it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not really usually in a lot of places. Yeah. Is that crystal clear, guys? Let's rock on. All right, so you want to make sure... So let's say if you don't have any of those factors. Let's say you just come inside just a bit sicker with your pneumonia. You don't have too many risk factors for drug-resistant pneumococcus. What can I give you? What can I give you? Just a regular outpatient. You come inside, and you, you, you have a... You have a you have a pneumonia, you don't have bad CO. Yeah, exactly. So what can I give? So you can give a macrolide and a second or third generation cathosporin or a respiratory fluoroquinolone. Does that make sense? Good stuff. All right, let's say you're really sick and you need to go to the ICU. What do you want to add in there? Right? Excellent. You want to consider about MRSA. Staph aureus MRSA. Does that make sense? Both of them. So staph aureus pneumonia, MRSA. Right? Pseudomonas, right? So you might use your pseudomonas one and then add something to it to cover MRSA, which would be what? Vancomycin. right? For crystal clear? Pneumonia. Now, pneumonia, let's talk about another guideline. Now, what's a comp? Okay, so I come inside, it's November, I have a pneumonia. Pneumonia, influenza. <laughs> so could I also have influenza? I could, right? Do I need to know about influenza for the exam? Yes. Can influenza give you a primary pneumonia? And the answer is yeah. yes, but it can also lead to a secondary bacterial pneumonia. Super infection. 
Exactly. And guess what bug can cause a lot of those super infections? MRSA, Staph aureus. Is Staph aureus pneumonia an example of a bad pneumonia? Yes, it's usually a severe necrotizing pneumonia. And guess what the other risk factor is? IV drug use. Does that make sense? And guess what the other risk factor is? Being on a fluoroquinolone. So what do we give for people usually when they come inside sometimes with a pneumonia? So you give them a fluoroquinolone. They say, why is this person, you know what I mean? This person got a course of Avalox two weeks ago, and now they're coming feeling worse, and their x-ray looks like they're dead. Does that make sense? But they're not. Right? What might you be thinking? Maybe this is actually this is actually this is actually a staph aureus pneumonia. Maybe we had influenza before. The question is, you want to think about influenza. Tell me a little bit about influenza. Super common. Does that make sense? The big thing I want you to remember about influenza is to do what, guys? Think about it. Any? What do you say, guys? That's how they're going to catch you. They're going to catch you because you're not going to think about it. Give me that in your differential. Right? Oh, this is obviously pneumonia. Guy with a consolidate. No, but it could also be influenza. Does that have important public health implications? It's yes. I could ask that question. You know, this person, a resident at a uh, long-term care facility, everybody say, hmm, might we want to do certain things if there's a little outbreak going on? Give some yeah, we might want to give some prophylaxis. Does that kind of jive? If the person is a resident of a long-term care facility. Does that make sense? So you see how I can ask that question, right? So you want to think about influenza. Keys for influenza management. Two important questions you need to ask folks is look at the person and look at how sick they are. What are you going to look at? You're going to look at the... Okay, so the person, I mean by what excellent, beautiful, I posted on the website, beautiful brand new influenza guidelines for this year. They're Canadian. Does that make sense? And they have, they're the, probably the best. The, uh, the guidelines are about 15 pages. You only need to know two of them. Beautiful influenza guideline. The, the, the flow chart is perfect. Does that make sense? I have it on my wall. It's laminated. Does that make sense? Like, it's that good. It's just so simple. I've never seen, a new, I've never seen an influenza, because influenza is one of these things you're like, oh my God, what do I do? Do I give the Tamiflu? Do I not do it? Have you ever been in that situation before? Does that make sense? So you have to look at the, when you're dealing with influenza, you have to look at the person, and you have to look at how sick they are. Uh, the, the, person, the person, do they have risk factors for getting really sick? Are they immunosuppressed? Does that make sense? And you have to look at what is their severity of disease. Are they not that sick? They're an outpatient. They're coming to your office. Their vital signs are relatively normal. It's not like they're hypoxemic. Does that make sense? Versus they're hypoxemic. You know, I'm thinking they need to be admitted. I'm thinking they need to be on a vent. Does that kind of jive? Because even if I have a person with zero risk factors who's really, really sick... Right? It's going, to change your man it's going to change your management a bit. Now, the thing is, is that these antivirals that we have, remember, they only work the best. Like, are there some things you can give at any time and they still work well? You want to give them, if you can, within 48 hours. Right? If you're going to choose to give them, you want to, if you can, give them in 48 hours. Unless, what do you say, unless, the person is super sick. Then if they come onto you day six super sick, you can, still, you can start the, the Oseltamivir, right? Or, everybody say unless, they have super risk factors for disease. Does that kind of jive? For getting severe disease. Is that crystal clear? 
beautiful guideline. Remember that flow sheet on the web. Just, just know that for your examination, right? Other things I want to do. Okay, what do we like to give? We like to give, okay, if we're in outbreak, and, and let's say I have somebody and they come inside and they're super healthy, and they come inside and they're they don't have any risk factors for they don't have any risk factors for severe disease for, for complicated disease and they're not that sick and they come inside and they see me within 48 hours and I know I'm in outbreak. Can I just give them the Tamiflu on spec? Yes. There you go. You can. If they're outside the 48 hours, do they need to get the Tamiflu? No. You don't have to. Yeah. Does that make sense? You don't need to. If they are not that sick, and if they don't have risk factors for complicated disease. Does that make sense? Are we crystal clear, folks? All right, let's say the person was previously on prophylaxis. I might ask you that. Oh, grandpa's coming in. He, they were on, they were on uh, prophylaxis with Tamiflu. Do we want to give him some more Tamiflu? No. no. What's that other medication we can give? A. Um, Amantadine, no. Don't write that down on the exam. What's the other one? Xanavir. Does that make sense? So there's alt. Remember that's the inhaled one. Does that kind of jive? That one t probably works a little bit better for people who've already been on Tamiflu prophylaxis, and it works a bit better for people with influenza A or B. A B. So someone comes inside, they've been on prophylaxis before, they've been on Tamiflu, that's 99% of the medication that we probably give is probably Tamiflu, and they're on, and they're on that, and they, you think they have the flu? If I, had a, if I had a person with tons of risk factors, you had severe disease, even if they come at day 8, they need to get something in flu season. Does that make sense? It is not wrong to do that. Is that crystal clear? So influenza B, they're on prophylaxis. Think about using the other one. Does that kind of jive? Excellent. And remember, we have specific recommendations that we have for if you have an outbreak, right? You can give prophylaxis. Does that make sense? I'll show you where those guidelines are. They're, uh, they're published by the CMAJ. Let me just check the computer who has them on. This is where you have them here. Megan has them. Is that the right one? That's the right one there. CMAJ one here. What address is that from? They're actually on the website. Does that make sense? Just use the ones that I have up on the website, right? That one there is a wonderful one. It's Canadian. It's on influenza. Know that one. Yeah, that's from 2012, 2013. But, yeah. I can send it up. Yeah. This book? Don't use this book. Don't use that. That's CMAJ. Does that make sense? I think it's the same. Huh? Well, it's similar. Does that make sense? Okay. Similar. I like this because it talks about what you do with those unique situations. Okay. Does that kind of jive? Crystal clear so far, guys? So remember, key points with that, you look at the patient, do they have risk factors for complicated disease, and how sick they are. Does that make sense? People with no risk factors who are not that sick, if you're in outbreak, great, you can just give the Tamiflu on spec. If they're outside 48 hours and, and, they, and they don't have risk factors, does that make sense, and they're not that sick, you don't need to. If they have a lot of risk factors, or, or, or if they're really sick, it doesn't matter if they're within or without, you can, you're probably better off giving them the Tamiflu. Does that make sense? Kind of makes sense intuitively. Remember, if people are on prophylaxis, it'll talk about what you do. Does that make sense? And the big one is if they're already on Tamiflu, they get sick with something, use the other one, Xanavir. Is there any harm giving Tamiflu? Like you know what, honestly, if I, yeah, it can, it can. I always say it's like, 
If you think the person has the flu, if you think it's a possibility, give it. Yeah. If you think the flu is a possibility, give it. And how are you going to be certain? We had 12 deaths this year from influenza. Confirmed. No, am I going to do routine? Yeah, you're going to, you're going to do that to help you confirm. But the thing is, it takes time to get those back. Does that make sense? Yeah. But the thing is, you're not going to be wrong. But you only give it to say a risk factor. Well, no, no. If, they were re if you had somebody without risk factors who was really sick. Let's say if I had that yeah, patient. No, say they're not really. Say they're, they're oh, yeah. not Clinic. Oh yeah, let's say they come to the clinic. They don't have risk factors, right? If they, if they, if, if they, this is what it says. If they don't have risk factors and they're not that sick, if they come within 48 hours of symptom onset, then you can give it. But if they come after 48 hours, then you don't have to. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear, guys? Do we see everybody have up the CMAG one? CMAG. CMAJ one? That's the one you want to know. Because that's based on this influenza season. Yeah. Is that crystal clear? Yeah. That's what you want to know, and I like that one because it gives a nice little flow sheet of what to do. And I love it because they finally helped me answer the question, and that's not in the red book. What do you do when someone's on prophylaxis? What do you do when they have confirmed um, influenza B? Well, we know Tamiflu might not work as well for that. Does that make sense? And they're really sick. Useful so far, guys? What are you saying in that situation? You use Xanavir. Does that make sense? The other one. Does that make sense? So if I have somebody, because think about it, how many deaths were there? Twelve. Twelve. And it's always a thing, the earlier, there were twelve deaths in Thunder Bay, right? Six in the media. Huh? Was there, you were saying yes. it was 12? 12 deaths. 12 deaths. Confirmed influenza. Exactly. It confirmed influenza. So do you wait in the ICU to confirm it, or if you just have somebody up there who gets a respiratory infection, you just Anyone automatic. that comes to the ICU got treated with it. Exactly. Yeah, regardless. You get it. Yeah. You get it. That's the thing. And exactly, remember, any test that you do, there's always a sensitivity and specificity, right? So it could be the person, you could get an influenza test back that's negative and the person actually has it, right? Let's just say we only had 12 confirmed influenza. Yeah. 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 The risk factors that they say, because like if they have mild or unmodified influenza and they have risk factors, yeah. even if it's greater than 48 hours, you can consider therapy. But the risk factors are really broad. Like anybody who has any heart disease. Oh, yeah. Any. And what they've done problems, is they've cast the net really wide. If they're Aboriginal, if they're under five or over sixty-five, like it's like it's super broad, and they want to do it like that to get everyone. you. Because notice those are, those are the people yeah. who have they don't have severe disease. Does that make sense? Right. But they have risk factors. Right. So what could happen if they get the flu? They could develop severe disease. Right. So it's about balancing. What's the chance I'm going to get a bad complication with Tamiflu versus the versus the fact that twelve people died in Thunder Bay? Does that make sense? Like what's the what's the what's the uh, what's the uh, what's the difference in risk? Does that make sense? Know those guidelines. Influenza is important, folks. Let's continue. Do we like infections? Yeah. Okay, let's go to sinusitis. Most were healthy people. Yeah. Sinusitis, guys, is that something pretty common? Yeah. Yes, okay. Sinusitis. Okay, I woke up this morning and I, I had a runny nose. I went on walking and the jerk doctor didn't give me an antibiotic. Like, can you believe that? I had an infection. What, what would you guys advise me? There you go. Love it. Okay, let's talk about sinusitis. New IDSA guidelines now. 
these are these are based on American data. These are these are based on American data. So they've actually changed what their first line guys listen. They've actually changed what their first line antibiotic that they use routinely. But I like still their framework. Does that make sense? We need a pass to get up here, don't we? Because it's after hours now. These guys have students they have to move forward. Yeah, we've got oh, yes, the Sues and stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Like quarter two? That's fine. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the wonderful world of sinusitis, folks. Remember, what, what features can help me define a sinusitis? So, A, if you have persistent symptoms for longer than 8 to 10 days. Does that make sense? What did I say, guys? Longer than 8 to 10 days. What's number two? Double dipping. What did I say? Double? So you kind of start off sick, you get better, and then you get sick again. Think about bacterial sinusitis. Does that make sense? Or if the symptoms are severe, you have a temperature higher than 39 degrees for three to four days straight. Does that make sense? And purulent nasal discharge, and you feel like crap. Does that make sense? That means you're thinking of bacterial, sinusi bacterial sinusitis, right? So if I come and I have three days of not being that sick clinically, when you see me and a runny nose with a lot of purulent, uh, uh, purulent nasal secretion, does, does that mean bacterial sinusitis? And the answer is probably not. Does that make sense? Isn't it unilateral as well? Yeah, yeah, unilateral or so. So they can have it. You can have a bilateral bacterial sinusitis. Does that make sense? But you get purulent discharge usually. Does that kind of jive? Facial pain, those types of things, right? Um, usually, usually, or if you have a high fever, like more severe symptoms, right? Lots of facial pain, purulent nasal discharge, high fever, and it's been going on for three to four days. Does that make sense? Then you want to think about, you want to think about, uh, uh, definitely, definitely want to think about that this could be a bacterial process. Does that make sense? All right. So you diagnose, he's thinking, okay, you know, this person, I come in, I've been having five days of a temperature of 41 degrees. I feel like crap. I'm having purulent nasal discharge and, ton, like, purulent nasal discharge and tons of pain. Would you, would you say, yeah, maybe this could be bacterial? You'd probably say maybe. Does that make sense? We good so far? All right. Next. What do you want to do next? All right? So they've actually changed what they consider their first-line antibiotic is. Can we do lifestyle first? Oh, oh, I should do that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm very, very sorry. There's, like, quit, get them to quit smoking. Does that make sense? What else are you going to recommend for them and stuff? Nasal saline irrigation. Is that always a good thing to do? Always. Does that make sense? Right? So nasal saline irrigation. Might you want to give them some ibuprofen for their pain? Does that make sense? Not a bad thing to do that, but you're going to do lifestyle modification. Does that make sense? Non-pharmacologic therapies. Right? Okay, oftentimes these people need some pharmacologic management because they, have, they, they could have a bacterial uh, 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 um, uh, um, uh, um, infection. So what are we going to do, guys, is that we have to look at, they've actually, because they, they found out that we're getting into this problem, because we were so indiscriminate on our antibiotic use for so many years, we're getting into this problem that they've started, we're getting to see a lot of resistance. And the big one, right, is, 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 is macrolides. Does that make sense? We, get, we used to give out a lot of macrolides. Does that make sense? Everyone comes in asking for Excellent. Give me a Z-Pack. You know what I mean? Five days, you take it, you feel like a million bucks. Does that make sense? The problem is, is that, is that, is that when you give this stuff, then eventually the pneumococcus gets a little resistant to it. And the problem is the stuff doesn't work. Right? 
And then things like Amoxil may not necessarily work as well, right? You know what they've actually done in the States? They've actually changed there. So their first-line agent is now clavulin. What did I say, guys? It's now? Because they're getting all these problems with resistance. So be very cautious. Because, you know, it was written for the United States. We don't have a similar thing for Canada. Does that make sense? We have that, you know, the the anti-infective guidelines. Let me see. What does it say? Because I haven't seen it because I tend to do what the states say. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is that the amoxicillin and clavulanic acid in Canada is still kind of, it's not your first line thing. That's probably going to be changing. Does that make sense? So just keep that in mind. Is that crystal clear? Yeah. All right, so what are you going to do? You're going to reassess, you're going to give them the antibiotics, you're going to do all the non-pharmacologic stuff, does that kind of jive? And then you're going to reassess them. So in three, or f- three to four days, they're either going to be no better, wor- no better or worse, or they're going to be getting a lot better. Does that make sense? So let's say they're getting a lot better. Great, pat yourself on the back, you're a fabulous doctor. Does that make sense? Let's say they're no better or they're worse. What is your second line a- a- agent for bacterial sinusitis? Right, so you, you could, right, uh, keep in mind resistance. Does that make sense? Right? What else could I use? Clavulin. Yeah, it, it's, the guideline is kind of more written based on United States data. We still have, and I'm not sure, like I've spoken to some ID doctors and they switched over to clavulin. Does that make sense? Just because they're saying, well, but what's really the correct answer? It's look at your local sensitivities. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So let's just, let's come up with a consensus. Probably the guideline, there's Canadian guidelines that say Amoxil, you know, is first line. It's probably heading towards clavulin. Does that make sense? Because we've been, have we been using a lot of Amoxil to treat this as well too? We have. Is that crystal clear? Yes. Right? What is actually, could, yeah? So Amoxil. Yeah, Amoxil. And then second would be Amoxil. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, the guideline would base it on, would say clavulin. The guideline would also say to check on your local sensitivities. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Ex- yeah. It would be. I would say it's reasonable to give amoxicillin. Does that make sense? It based on your local sensitivities. Is that kind of jive? If your local sensitivities talks about, and I haven't really been able to find a very good Canadian guideline other than that book. You know what I mean? And stuff that's kind of. But the problem is, it's based on data that's really old. Does that kind of jive? Mm-hmm. Like that's what I'm not too sure about, right? And this newest one for sinusitis was written like last year. Does that make sense? So I'm I'm not I, I'm not 100 percent I'm not 100 uh, percent uh, I'm sure. What could be a second line? Agent. So that's a, this is somebody who's failed a first line agent. What could you use? A fluoro? Yeah, fluoroquinolone, right? So, yeah, so fluoroquinolone. Are fluoroquinolones first line agents? And the answer is absolutely not. Because we want to save them. Does that make sense? That's why when we talk about UTI in a moment, they're not first line agents. Does that make sense? Fluoroquinolones are not first line agents for UTIs. Does that make sense? Because we want to save them for when the first-line agent stuff does. And if we start using them as first-line agents, you're going to see a whack load of? And then you're going to be, you're not going to have anything. I will clean it. Huh? It may. And you may have, if, it's really, if the person's really sick, you probably have to use a clinda with something else. Does that make sense? You want to use, if they're really, really sick with that, and they're on IV therapy, either a fluoroquinolone or some ceftriaxone or something like that. You know what I mean? But that's like parenteral therapy you're giving for someone with a rip-roaring sinusitis that you're giving like IV medications to. Does that make sense? Is that a majority of patients? That's a minority of patients. But clinda and a third-generation cephalosporin wouldn't be unreasonable. Does that make sense? Guyland also talks about, do I have to think about MRSA and resistant pathogens? The answer is yes. Yeah? May have to use it for that purpose, right? Is that crystal clear, guys? 
sinusitis. It's changing. All right, so we talked about meningitis. Let's go down a little bit in the body system. Is body systems. So I put this one, uh, this guideline up on the website. Brand new from catheter-associated UTIs. They're called cauties. Everybody say cauties. They're called catheter-associated UTIs. That's the new like hospital term for like quality control. How many cauties do you got at your center, man? Does that make sense? Is this Yeah. Catheter-associated UTIs. Does that make sense? So urinary tract infections. What's the biggest, what, what is a huge hospital risk factor of, of urinary tract infections? Everybody says urinary? Yeah. Urinary catheters are huge risk factors. What do we... Three days. Huh? Isn't it essentially after three days almost everyone gets one? Yeah, exactly, exactly. What do we know that, what do we know that they're a huge risk factor? Do we know that, like... Sometimes people have a catheter. Has this ever happened to you guys? And I will be honest with you. You're like, yeah, okay, Mrs. Smith. We're going to send you home. You had some rip-roaring sepsis, but we, you know, we gave you some level fed and fluid, and you're 100% now, and you know, it's a week later, and you're feeling great. You know what I mean? And you're like, all right, you know, have a wonderful day. You know, I'll see you in the clinic in a couple. You know, you shake the hand. You know, all right, you know, excellent. And they're like, am I going home with the catheter still? And you're like, ah. Oh. Has that ever happened to anybody? Yes. Can we all admit to that? Or are you guys going to make me feel really bad? <laughs> Please don't make me feel really bad. Because it happens. It happens. So what is one of the simple things you can do is that, is that you can remember to take urinary catheters out when you don't need it anymore, right? Remember, they have actually specific indications for urinary catheters. One is retention. Two is the person has a bad, like, perianal abscess or something like that where you're concerned about contamination. Those, you know what I mean? And stuff. Three is you need to monitor the urine output. Right? So there's specific things. Right? There's more than that, but there's specific things that they look for. If you're not doing one of those things, so we needed to monitor her urine output when she was in her ICU to make sure she made it to the, one c to the half to one cc per kilogram per hour, but the problem is we forgot about the catheter. Does that make sense? So you want to make sure that when you put in urinary catheters that you remember to take them out. So it's really prevention, right? Remember, cauties are preventable. Does that make sense? Crystal clear? All right. What do the guidelines say? The guidelines say, can we use, oh, you know what? So catheter-associated UTIs. Um, so remember when you draw a culture, you have to change the catheter and draw it from the new. Does that make sense? What do you have to do too and stuff? Can we, can we rely on smell changes and consistency? Oh, this looks a little cloudy or maybe we should give them some antibiotics. No, don't do that. Does that make sense? You have to have clinical signs and symptoms as well too, right? I would, would you just give, you know what, how's Mrs. Smith doing today? She's doing fabulous. She's doing, this is the best I've ever seen her. Her urine's a little cloudy. Uh -oh. Have we ever gotten those calls before? Honestly, think about your time on the thing. How's Mrs. Smith doing? Oh, she's doing great. She, you know, she baked you a cake here at the end of the night. How's her catheter doing? Oh, it's a bit cloudy. Cloudy, Exactly. And what do you think, what are they trying to get you to think? Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe we should give her some. Is that kind of the innuendo that you get? So are you going to do that? Oh, her urine's a little cloudy. Let's just cover her just to be on the safe side. Are we going to do that, folks? No, right? So basing it on things like cloudiness or change in odor, not good. You need to have more than that. Does that kind of jive? All right. Okay, what about things like, okay, so what would I do to recommend to Mrs. Smith? Well, does she need the Foley catheter still? Oh, maybe we can pull it out. That'll solve the cloudy urine. You know what I mean? Is that crystal clear? What about these catheters that you get from drug companies that you know are coated with silver and have all these funny things? Are there evidence that those things reduce them? No, not really. They're expensive. Not quite ready for prime time yet, right? 
Does that make sense? So just keep in mind just a couple things with urinary catheters I want you to keep in mind, right? So big points that the guideline talks about when you're diagnosing these things. Urinary, it smells funnier than it normally smells. I don't know about you guys, but pee always smells funny to me. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what I mean? They just say it's fair. You know what I mean? That's not good enough to make the diagnosis, right? Or it's a change in turbidity. That's not good enough to make the diagnosis. Does that kind of jive? Remember, this diagnosis is based on a certain number of colony-forming units per mil. You know what I mean? Per mil. Like, that's how this is defined, right? Plus, they're having some systemic signs and symptoms. Does that kind of jive? The, what they want to re-put the emphasis on is, does the person need the Foley? Because a lot of people in hospital that have a Foley, does that make sense? They, do, they may not necessarily need it. Oftentimes people start off in the hospital with super badness and we put in Foley's to monitor urine output and then on day eight when we're ready to send them home, we kind of, oh crap, we forgot to pull the Foley. That's happened to everybody here, right? So we were lucky they didn't get something more serious. Does that make sense? Is that, good, is that a good thing? What about cranberry juice for cowdies? Yeah, so no consistent evidence, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't, you know, they have this other thing. I'm not sure I'm too convinced of the evidence, you know? Huh? Prevention of a cowdy? They, they, they don't make it. Yeah. Uh, it's like super high, though. Like, that's why they pills. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, not sure. Uh, guideline doesn't really. Because it doesn't hurt, you know, the cranberry juice tastes good. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? I know, exactly, you know, but it's not... Exactly, the concentrated... I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the evidence... I'm not sure, guys, the evidence is there to support that in the guideline. I'm not sure the evidence is there to support that. Does that make sense? Very controversial trials to do and very hard trials to do. Well, Crystal Claire? What is that? Me. Just Maybe it is. I know, I know, probably. But again, the guideline's gonna bitterness. The guideline's gonna talk about like it's probably not gonna hurt, but whether it benefits to prevent, that's what we don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. With asymptomatic bacteria, do you have to change the folding? Or is it just if you're diagnosing it? Symptomatic UTI. If you're having a symptomatic UTI. Does so that make sense? Asymptomatic asymptomatic bacteria, you should say, why did you do the culture to determine that it was bacteria? Because she was pregnant. No, 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 no. Let's say with a cowdy. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, like, yeah. let's say with a cowdy. Like, I would say, why are you having the culture? Like, if I have a person yeah. who's fine, I would ask myself, do they need the yeah. foley? No, I and if I have a person who's fine, I would say, what made me do the culture? If it was a reason like the urine change color or it smells funny, that's not yeah. a good enough reason. Okay. Now, what if some centers were taking cultures between like when they check out the foley? Yeah. Just because that was their protocol. <laughs> Really? I, I'm sure Senate are going to have different policies, you know what I mean? So you're probably going to want to change it. Does that make sense? So, but, uh, yeah. Different places are going to have their different, uh, their different protocols that they're going to use. Is that crystal clear? Can I look for alternatives? Like, do I have to use an indwelling folded catheter? What can I use? Everybody remember this condom catheter. What is it called, eh? So with males, not in retention, could I use a condom catheter? I would ask that on the exam. You have a male and they have a post void residual of minus seven. 
<laughs> you have involuted their, 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 exactly, their bladder contracts so well that their post-flow residual is actually a minus value. They have no urine in there. They've never had that problem with urinary retention. They have problems, but it ain't urinary retention. Does that make sense? And you need to follow their urine output. Is it reasonable to use a condom catheter? And the answer is yes. So think about that, right? Think about it. Cowdies, for me, I love using that term. I learned that at a conference. They call it that. It's, it's C-A-U-T-I, right? Catheter-associated U-T-I, right? But they call them cowdies now. I love it, right? But they, it's really focused on prevention. Does this person need a Foley? Does that make sense? Do they need a Foley? If you think they have a UTI, you need to have more than this urine changes color. It changes, ter- well, not color, turbidity. You know, if it goes black, it's probably not good. You know what I mean? And stuff. But um, if it goes, uh, uh, um, uh, um, if it changes turbidity or smell, you need more than that. Does that kind of jive? And if I don't have that, then why am I drawing a culture off of it? That's not a good enough reason because chances are it's going to grow something. You just get one back that like you're in working in the hospital and you're like, oh, someone. Ordered- so you get it back. Yeah, you look at the patient and say, are they symptomatic? Does that make sense? Very much. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You look back and you say, because then you run the risk of, oh, let's treat it. Does that make sense? So you treat somebody who's not symptomatic. Does that make sense? And now all you've done is you made them now resistant to another antibiotic for when they do get sick because they have a Foley catheter still in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that crystal clear, guys? UTIs. UTIs polynephritis. Brand new guidelines. Does that make sense? All right, what are new things with urinary tract infections, right? Okay, so I like it. They kind of talk about the uncomplicated urinary tract infection and then the more serious pyelonephritis complex. So you have the uncomplicated urinary tract infection. So that's like your cystitis. Does that make sense? So what agents can I give for cystitis, right, to treat a cystitis? What? Macrobid. So macrobid is a five-day treatment. So macrobid is nitrofurantoin. So that's a five-day treatment. And what's my other treatment that I have in Canada? That's a three-day treatment is Septra. Does that make sense? Now, there are other agents that you can do. The problem is we don't have them in Canada, so I won't even bore you with their names. Does that make sense? But they're in other countries. Uh, it depends, right? Amoxyl is going to have, depending, remember a lot of E. coli, which is the big bug, is resistant, right? We can use it in pregnancy because they see higher rates of enterococcus. Does that make sense? Which it's going to cover, right? So again, it depends on your local resistance pattern. Let's say you had somebody and they had an uncomplicated cystitis. What would you give them, right? You'd probably give them Septron. Does that make sense? You For three days or you could give them Macrobid for five days. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear? It's always the reproductive age well, the, the problem is, and again, the answer depends on resistance. The problem is, is that it depends on your local resistance patterns. In some places, there's still okay rates of E. coli resistance, you know what I mean? Where E. coli's are still susceptible to penicillin. I know in Sioux Lookout, they're not. Does that make sense? There's a high rates of resistance to penicillin, so we don't use them, right? We use them in pregnancy. We use amoxyl. Does that make sense? Because you can't really give septra in the first and the third trimester. Macrobid is, again, we don't like to give in the first and the third trimester. Does that kind of jive? So, well, is it safe all throughout pregnancy? It's safer, but it's not safe all throughout pregnancy. That's the problem. Does that make sense? And the real concern is, is that, okay, amoxyl is, 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 if the person doesn't have really, really bad symptoms, you know, it may be an okay starting point because I know it's not a teratogen. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, you can, you can, but, but again, it depends on your sensitivities. Does that make sense? What year is that book from? That's 212. That's 212, right? So things can change. Does that make sense? And it depends on your sensitivities. Does that kind of jive? 
right? So again, it can be that. Would I use Keflex in an otherwise, you know, non-pregnant female who is otherwise healthy? Probably not. Does that make sense? It's just contraindicated to the term. Very good. Yeah, term. So by then you don't Yeah, yeah. Is that crystal clear, guys? All right. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about pyelonephritis, right? What does the guideline talk about pyelonephritis? Again, it depends a lot on your, your, your local resistance patterns, what antibiotics you're going to see about using, right? One of the things I really like it mentioning is that you have to ask yourself that important question. Okay, if this person is septic and in shock, you're not going to send them home. Does that make sense? You're going to manage them like how we talked about at the beginning. You're going to manage them like they're septic. But what you're going to do as well, too, is that let's say most women with pyelonephritis or a lot of people with pyelonephritis are not like that. You're wondering, can I send them home? And the answer is, well, if they're, if they're not that sick, yes, you can, right? You have to still ask yourself, is what is my rate of resistance? What is the question I'm going to ask myself? What is my rate of resistance? Is this person vomiting? What can I ask? Is this person? Because if they're vomiting and I say, here's your PO fluoroquinolone, does that make sense? What could they do? They could puke it? They could puke it up, right? Is that crystal clear? Might I end up with problems? Yeah. Excellent. So what options does it give? Well, it says you have a couple different options. You can give, can I give fluoroquinolones for, for polynephritis? And the answer is? Yeah. IV, what can I give? Well, I can give third-generation cephalosporins because they can, they can, they can, they can, uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, they have good gram-negative coverage, right? But again, it depends on local resistance patterns. What else can I give? It's consolidated gentamicin. Does that make sense? What else is, guys? Consolidated? Gentamicin, that can be an option as well too, as parenteral therapy, and then bridge the person over to, uh, over to PO. So what does that mean is that you kind of give them their first dose, and then you kind of give send them home on the PO medications. Is that crystal clear? Why would you use Gentamicin if you can use like a Ceftriaxone? Because Ceftriaxone is way more expensive. Does that make sense? Um, sometimes Gentamicin's E. coli has very low rates of resistance to Gent, right? They're starting to see a lot because we give so much Ceftriaxone in a lot of areas, a lot more resistance to Ceftriaxone, right? But it just, it's just talking about options, right? Like, yeah, I give a lot of Ceftriaxone. You give the 24 hour. Yeah, you give the 24 consolidated hour drugs. Or let's say if you were in an area where there was a lot of, where there was higher amount of fluoroquinolone resistance, you may consider giving that initial dose of something like a ceftriaxone or a consolidated gentamicin. Does that make sense? Before putting them on the fluoroquinolone. To get those levels down quickly. Does that make sense? To get the bacterial levels down relatively quickly. Crystal clear, guys? Are we good? Alright, so remember the gentamicin, they've added that in. We hate gent for some reason. I think it was from the days when we used to give gent for three months and not check levels and then people would come back ototoxic and that type of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's not necessarily a bad thing because it's the pain resistance because we don't use it. <laughs> e. coli is almost always sensitive to gent, right? Whereas ceftriaxone, you can, you're going to start see, you start to see resistance trains. Does that make sense? So remember, you can take a consolidated gentamicin dose, right? And there are certain provisos with that, right? You can't use it on everybody. You know, you have to watch what the person's renal function is or what you think their renal function might be, and then and then uh, and then base it on that. Is that crystal clear? How are we doing, guys? Good. You guys want to take a two-minute break? Because sure. we've been just we we have to like we have to fire through and talk about like diabetes and what would I ask on the exam because. Everybody's going to know about metformin. I would ask about the parts of the guideline that no one's going to read, like how do you define hypoglycemia? 
Is hypoglycemia important, guys? Yeah. It is, right? Because if you drive a car and you get hypoglycemia, right? What happened? Could what could happen? You could drive yourself off the road, right? Well, the parts of the guideline that talk about how you treat in pregnancy, right? Well, the parts of the of the of the guideline that talk about you know. Um, the parts of the guideline that talk about how you treat it in hospital with hospitalized patients and their insulin regimes. What kind of regimes are you going to give them? Does that make sense? So we're going to talk a little bit about those because in previous years I didn't spend as much time on those. Um, um, you know, and questions showed up. Does that make sense? You know. And so we're going to we're going to spend a little bit of time on that. Does that kind of jive as well as talking about the meteor parts? We have to get through hypertension. So a few things. Oh, we have more stuff to do. I have to get through urinary retention. I have to get, do some mental health stuff. Does that make sense? And we have to get through some sexual dysfunction. Does that make sense? Because those are topics that like to come up. Does that make sense? Urinary incontinence? Woo! Is that a topic, folks? Everybody say woo! There you go. All right, we'll take a two-minute break. Rocking. Okay, cellulitis. Is that on our guideline? Yes, we need to know a little bit about cellulitis. Remember, um, new cellulitis guidelines. What is the big bug that's changed the way we think about cellulitis? MRSA. What did I say, guys? MR? I love the way the new cellulitis guidelines talk about looking at cellulitis. Now, again, it's not just about how I learned about cellulitis where you just gave everything the title. Cellulitis, you know, it's a skin infection and it's not neck fascia, so therefore it has to be cellulitis. Does that kind of jive? We know that there's different levels. So we got, it defines what's called an erysipelas. What did I say, guys? an era? That's of the most superficial layers of the stratum corneum. Well, that it has a characteristic appearance. How many of us have ever seen what an erysipelitic rash looks like? Very, it almost looks like a geographic border, right? Very well defined, and it's raised. Does that make sense? Almost always group A strep. Does that make sense? Almost always group A strep. So when you see an erysipelitis, group A strep, I want you to think about, right? Very common in kids, can be common in adults as well. Now, cellulitis is when you get an infection in this, um, I should say, I, let me correct myself, absolutely Abscesses. Those are another type of cutaneous infections. Does that make sense? All right. Abscesses can be caused by staph, can be caused by strep. Does that make sense? What's my treatment of my abscess, folks? Is it antibiotics first line? The answer is no. It's incision and drainage. Does that make sense? Right? Unless it's super complicated or very, very widespread, not a whole lot of difference oral antibiotics makes. It's incision and drainage. And what does oral antibiotics do, folks? They give you more. What's the R word? Resistance. Does that make sense? So think about it. When you got an abscess, your principal strategy is IND, unless it's something weird. It's widespread or unless there's an associated cellulitis around it. Does that make sense? I like it because the new guideline talks about these things which are actual clinical stuff that we see. Cellulitis, it's an infection of the skin with extension into the subcutaneous tissues. Does a cellulitis usually have a well-defined border? And the answer is no, right? It's not like an erysipelas. Erysipelas looks like you cut it out using an X-Acto knife. Does that make sense? Cellulitis, not usually. Now, when you got a cellulitis, what's the big thing you got to make sure that you don't have is a necrotizing infection. What is it, guys? You've got to make sure you don't have a necrotizing infection. What are going to be some clinical features that are going to tell you whether or not you have a necrotizing infection? Shout some out for Super painful. Excellent. So pain out of proportion. What else? Good. You can. With certain types, you can get purpura. Does that make sense? You can get a purpura, exactly, or necrosis. Does that make sense? Right. What else can you see? Gas forming. Gas forming. So you, you might feel crepitus. Does that make sense? You might feel like Velcro, right? Good. So it's growing despite being on what you think is the right antibiotics. Does that make sense? And it's rapidly progressing. Let me give you some stuff that people know. Let me give you some other stuff, right? So one is cellulitis. When you feel somebody with a cellulitis, it's supposed the tissue is supposed to yield. If you have a deep necrotizing infection, 
infection or a serious deep infection, what happens? Does the skin yield? It feels really hard. Does that make sense? Right? So that can be a sign, right? What happens is you might develop with necrotizing infections, cutaneous anesthesia. So if you have a person who comes to you and they say, I can't feel the skin on top of this cellulitis, you're going to think this infection is a deep necrotizing infection. Does that make sense? Right? You come in with, with necrosis, you're going to think that as well, as well in the right sort of clinical context. If you have bullae, does that make sense? Especially if it's bullae with a hemorrhage in it, you're going to think that this is a necrotizing infection. This is a deep tissue space infection. Is that kind of jive that you need to do something about? Are we crystal clear so far? All right. What kind of things can make a deep necrotizing or deep infection, right? So there's a whole bunch of different things. The guideline will talk about uh, uh, melanies. Uh, 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 um, you can have clostridium. Does that make sense? Can clostridium cause problems? Yes. Who does it cause problems to? Post-surgical patients, injury patients. It can make people get really, really sick super, super quickly with a bad, bad necrotizing sort of deep tissue space infection. Does that make sense? So someone comes in post-surgical. Someone comes in, they, they, they scrape themselves at the farm. Does that make sense? There's some type of injury. You're going to think about something like that, especially if it's rapidly progressing. Does that kind of jive? What else can people get, right? People can get, let's say they have necrotizing fasciitis sometimes by regions, right? So if you have necrotizing fasciitis, the deep tissue spaces of your neck, we call that Ludwig's angina. Does that make sense? Who gets Ludwig's angina? Anybody can get Ludwig's angina. I want you guys to think about diabetics who go to the dentist. What are the two Ds? Diabetics who go to the? Because it's an odontogenic, you can get it from spread of an odontogenic infection. Does that make sense? We're crystal clear so far? Right? And those things can be bad. Let's say if you get the, the, the lovely necrotizing fasciitis of the perineum. What do we call that? Fournier's gangrene, right? Which means that you may need to give males a penile degloving. Sounds as good as it looks. Does that make sense? Right? So, or lots of aggressive debridement. Now, what do those people need? They need surgery. Does that make sense? And they need broad-spectrum antibiotics. So those people are going to go. They're not going to stay in Sioux Lookout. They're not going to stay in Dryden. They're not going to stay in Nor um, uh, They're not going to stay in Temiskaming Shores. Does that kind of jive? They're going to be going somewhere with they can get surgery to get this debrided. Does that make sense? Now they're going to talk about... Now, the, you can also get a staphylococcal infection that forms inside a muscle group called a pyomyositis. What did I say, guys? It's called a pyomyositis, right? Which is apparently very rare, except in Sioux Look, we apparently see this every day. Does that make sense? Right? Right? And basically, it's like a staph or you get almost like a collection that forms inside a muscle, right? It's called a pyomyositis. Does that make sense? That's different than a pyoderma. Pyoderma gangrenosum. Yeah. Different, different, different sort of pathology. Does that make sense? We're good so far, guys? Are you guys feeling me? I'm going to go through this. So you have to rule out all that necrotizing infection. There's a few other bad, serious necrotizing ones, but if you keep in mind those features, you know, if something's not adding up, remember, call it neck fash. How do you make the diagnosing of a necrotizing infection? Remember, oftentimes it's clinical. You can, do next gas. you can, but just because you don't have gas doesn't mean you don't have a necrotizing infection. Does that make sense? So it's good. It's one of these things that, yeah, it's, if you see it, it can help you. But if you don't, does that make sense? It doesn't mean that it's not there. Does that make also, sense? Also, one thing I've noticed is a lot of these people will have, like, multidisciplinary there, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, Septicemia, yeah. Yeah, why is your creatinine 500? Why is your blood pressure only, yeah. you know, why is your blood pressure only 20 on zero? Does that make sense? Like, so those are the types of, yeah, exactly, exactly, right? So maybe they, maybe they might have, maybe they, if they're systemically unwell. Does that make sense? Because it would be hard, I, I know the powder and brown and also because it's super, super painful too, like neck back. Oh yeah, it can be. It's hard to different, yeah, yeah, it can be. 
but they're different pathologies. Like one is more inflammatory. Does that make sense? But this is more infectious. Does that kind of jive? So, um, uh, um, um, yeah, so I want you guys to keep that. So these are types of necrotizing sort of infections, right? There's other ones called, you know, streptococcal myositis and melanie synergistic gangrene and stuff. So, but just keep in mind, the general idea is these are necrotizing infections that are deep. Does that make sense? They're not just involving the skin and subcutaneous tissue. Remember, when we say necrotizing fasciitis, it's kind of a misnomer because we think the fascia is involved. It's not the fascia of the muscle that's involved. It's everything kind of from the skin to the muscular fascia. Does that make sense? That's what's involved, right? Right. So a fasciitis, that's what's involved. Does that kind of jive? It doesn't involve the muscle fascia. It's kind of the superficial fascia. Does that make sense? So from the skin to the, sub, to, to the muscular fascia, to, to, to the uh, muscular fascia. What's a treatment for necrotizing fasciitis, guys? What do we do? Surgical. We have to surgical, so they need debridement, which means, do they need to debridement tomorrow, next no, week? No. Now, right now, like yesterday. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So we went in Orange School and this one lady and yeah. uh, Dr. Azad, the plastic surgeon, yeah. said, come look at this lady's arm. And, like, it was just swollen. It was yeah. like, Black, yeah, like purple. Yeah, exactly. Like dark, dark Clostridium purple. can do that. Thick, exactly. And she was super toxic. When was yeah. Like, oh, I can't move my arm. Yeah. Months ago. Yeah. 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 So these are some. It's kind of weird because when you read the guideline, it talks about these things as being rare. I'm like, we see this like not infrequently. You know what I mean? Like, this is like, oh yeah, this is our third case of pyo of pyomyositis. You know what I mean? I'm like, when they talk about MRSA endocarditis, they're like this is a super rare thing on the guideline and we three in a week. I know we had three in a week yeah. we had three in one week of MRSA endocarditis he ended up taking her to the OR. Yeah. Most of her I know, family. I know. And he's like, I gotta take her back to the exactly. OR. Exactly. 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 And that's the and thing. I know, and that's the problem is that oftentimes these surgeries are disfiguring. Oftentimes, this is not just one debridement. This is many debridements. Does that mean? Exactly. Exactly. She had to get her arm removed. Exactly. Yeah. But the first time, even that he debrided, he said he opened her up. Yeah. Just open them up, and there's and a clear difference yeah. in the tissue. Oh yeah, yeah. You just had to cut everything. Oh yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's just like literally they'll peel muscle away, like it's just dead tissue and yeah. stuff. So it's not pretty. Like it's not not pretty. Uh, not not pretty at all, right? Yeah. So and keep in mind, we, there's a, a whole bunch of different types of necrotizing infections, but there's kind of certain types that are what we call polymicrobial necrotizing fasciitis, and then there's a, a mono, more of a monomicrobial form. Does that make sense? That might have one, maybe two bugs. Does that make sense? Your polymicrobial form, you know what I mean? Uh, um, uh, um, people are sicker, people with decubitus ulcers, you know, IV drug users can get them as well too. Your monomicrobial form, what's the big bug that can cause it? Group A. Group A strep. Does that make sense? So a streptococcal sort of infection. Does that make sense? So no, like, 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 so just keep that in mind with necrotizing fasciitis. So these people need broad spectrum antibiotics. So give me an idea. You're going to manage their sepsis. Does that make sense? You're going to manage their sepsis, guys? You're going to manage their sepsis, fluids, antibiotics, What's your first line vasopressor again, guys? Remind me. Levofed. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Your first line vasopressor is levofed. How much fluid? What's your fluid bolus? Excellent. You see, you guys are pros, right? What antibiotics could you give this person? Subtract. You could, right? You did vanco, piptazo. You could give. Now, usually, yeah. Exactly. You could. Clindamycin is a good thing because clinda is a specific antitoxin. Does that make sense for certain strains of Clostridium? Does that make sense? So you can consider using that if you think this person. Because you don't know, right? You're not going to know that they don't have clostridium. Does that make sense? So we usually just give it. Does that kind of jive? Especially if you think they have uh, um, um, clostridium gas gangrene as a possibility, right? Are we good so far, guys? Yeah. All right. I think he said that. Uh, if you see it a lot in Africa,
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The majority cases are yeah. even without them. They just want to be acceptable and you yeah. there's a genetic component about it. Yeah. I'm not sure how much are. Yeah. Yeah, like the pyo, pyo, it's just that, because if you read the guideline, they say that this stuff is rare. Like pyomyositis, this is like, they're like, this is case reports. But this is like stuff that we oh, see no. routinely. Like, it's like. She's like, oh, we got another. And yeah, we have another pyomyositis. <laughs> another case report, another one for the CMAJ. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's you know, the second in Canada. You know what I mean? And so, so again, you know, it's, it's, it's again because of changing. <laughs> Microbiology is fascinating because things can change so rapidly, right? All right, so that's the bad stuff. Now, thankfully, that's not the majority, though, right? So the new way of classifying cellulitis, right, is kind of, remember we said, okay, we have erysipelas, we know how to deal with that, right? We know we have abscess, we know how to deal with that. Okay, we want to make sure we rule out an, a necrotizing infection. Okay, we've done that. Does that make sense? Thankfully, now we're talking about cellulitis. Now, there's a new way of classifying it. I want everybody to say there's a wet cellulitis and then a dry cellulitis. What did I say? There's two different types now. There's wet and there's... What are the two types? There's wet and there's... Now think about this, guys. You guys have all seen patients. Imagine a patient with a cellulitis. You ever seen patients with cellulitis and the cellulitis looks wet? Like it's not like there's an abscess there. It's not like there's something you can drain, but it just looks kind of disgusting and wet. But then you also see people that they have the cellulitis and it just looks like a bright, red, angry, dry thing. We've all seen both variants, right? I like the new guidelines now because they talk about that you can, that different, potentially different etiologies, bugs that can produce them. So whenever you think of wet cellulitis, I want you to think of MRSA, Staph aureus. Does that make sense? What did I say? MRSA, Staph aureus. Whenever you think about dry cellulitis, I want you to think about group A strep. What did I say, guys? Group A? Exactly. Now, is this 100%? 100%? No, it isn't, right? It could be an 80, you know, um, uh, it depends on your community resistance patterns, right? But most wet can be MRSA. Does that make sense? So in some communities, that might be 60. In some communities, that might be 90. Does that make sense? Why do diabetics always look dry? Not necessarily, right? Because diabetics... I've seen on diabetics always look dry. Not necessarily. It depends how much venous insufficiency you have, right? Because if you, if you, for example, if you have if you have a diabetic foot, but you can also have you know arterial insufficiency, yeah. right, as well as venous insufficiency as yeah. well too in the foot, right. So uh, you know it kind of depends on a lot of factors. You know what I mean? It depends on a, a lot of a lot of uh, factors. But we've all seen that before, and I like that because they now put that in the guideline that you know what it can help you make decisions. So let's say you had somebody, and let's say they weren't sick like a neck fash, or maybe even sick enough to require warrant admission to hospital, right? And they had a wet cellulitis. What might you be reasonable in giving coverage for? You might be re- reasonable in giving coverage for just MRSA. And what kind of things can cover MRSA? What kind of antimicrobials can cover MRSA? Shout, so septra, let's say oral ones, because we're sending these people home. Does that make sense? So septra is one, what else? Clindamycin, what else? Doxy, right? Those are your three major ones that we like to use, right? Now doxy may have a slightly higher rate of treatment failures. Um, um, septra, you probably have to, you know, if it's a big football player, give them a bit more than if it's a young, you know what I mean? Like if it's a, it's an 85-year-old, you know, lady and stuff who's five foot one. Does that make sense? So, but, but, but keep in mind that that's generally what we can use. Does that kind of jive? Yeah? No, I know Gamble, he... I know we use the Clinda, but he says basically the only time he wants to see Clinda is with like neck fat. Well, the thing is, is that the thing is, the concern is this, and this is why Dr. Gamble, I think, is concerned, is that the one that MRSA tends to get resistance to the first is clindamycin. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you were to pick one of those three that tends to get resistant for, is clindamycin. Does that make sense? That's what happened in the States. In the States, a lot of their MRSA is resistant now to clindamycin, right? So that, and that hasn't been the trend here. And in Sioux Lookout, that's not really the trend that we're 
seeing, but you know that based on the history, we could do probably the same things that our southern partners could ha could do. Isn't also because of C diff. Well, yeah, and, and the potential for C diff, right? You know what I mean? Is also is also uh, there as well too. But as far as the MRSA, you know what I mean? Like as far as the MRSA, clindamycin, you know, that's the one that you tend to get resistance to. Does that make sense? That's what's concerning, right? So it's the resistance. Are we setting ourselves up to basically have an antibiotic that won't work? Does that make sense? So if you can get away with septra, why not just use the septra? So you said wet is MRSA and the other one? Yeah, MRSA and dry, group A strep. Does that make sense? Now, guys, use a little bit of common sense. If I have somebody with a life-threatening infection, or a severe facial cellulitis, you're going to treat for both. Does that make sense? Because yeah. you don't know. This is not like 100% of wet cellulitis or MRSA and 100% of group A streps are dry. No, that's not. It depends on your local sensitivity. It's a most. It might be a 70-30. Does that make sense? It kind of depends. If I have somebody with a cellulitis on their foot and it's wet, eh, you know, they're not toxic. You know, it's not like they're on an immunosuppressant where they're going to get sick really fast. I may just use coverage for MRSA. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Is that crystal clear? Yeah. It's kind of new with the guideline. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good so far, guys? Oh, yeah. All right, so we have a little bit on cellulitis now. Mm -hmm. So now cellulitis isn't just Keflex for all, right? That's how I learned about cellulitis. Just give him Keflex. Give him clocks and Keflex and hope to God it doesn't. Do you understand? Turn into neck fast. But now because of MRSA, folks, it's changed things a bit. Does that make sense? All right, I want everybody to write this down, put a circle in it. Diabetic foot infections. What did I say, guys? Diabetic? Foot infections. Excellent. I want to just mention a little snapper on that. Is every ulcer a diabetic gets infected? No. no. There's certain criteria that we use for determining um, uh, uh, um, uh, an infection, right? IDSA has criteria, right? You have to have a certain amount of erythema, right? Like usually it has to be less than two centimeters and, uh, and, and greater than 0.5, right? To count as an infection. Sometimes you have to have purulent drainage, but there's other criteria that we use. It does not mean you have an ulcer, therefore I need to give you an antibiotic. Can I make that? The minute you have an ulcer, you need antibiotics. The answer is no. no. So are all ulcers infected in diabetics? No. Okay, point number two I want you to remember. I want you guys to read the guideline, but I'm just mentioning the salient point. Point number two I want you to think about, right? If I have an ulcer, if that ulcer is on top of a bone, and let's say it's keep on recurrent, 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 where could the infection be? The infection could be in the? So I want everybody to write down diabetes, osteomyelitis. So you see an ulcer over a bony prominence, I want you to think about osteomyelitis. You see a high ESR in an ulcer that's deep, I want you to think about osteomyelitis. Does that make sense? You see somebody that you can probe to bone, so the ulcer, and you take a sterile probe and you can hit bone, think about osteomyelitis. Does that make sense? Because that is not going to get better with two weeks of Keflex. Does that kind of jive? Yeah. So think about that. Recurrent ulcers. Have we all had patients like that? Oh, ulcer again in the same spot. Especially, you're going to think, I wonder if that's a deeper, I wonder if that's actually in the bone. And all we're doing is we're just kind of offloading for a bit and covering the skin stuff. And the minute things re-epithelialize the bone, and we stop the antibiotics, the bone infection just comes through again. Is that crystal clear, guys? All right, what does the guideline recommend for most diabetic foot infections? Well, you, you, for, 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 for diabetic foot infections is that most of the time you're okay for coverage for just gram-positive aerobic cocci, right? So things like you also want to consider what's my chance of MRS? A, right? So do we need to start everybody with a little diabetic foot ulcer on Vanco and Piptas? Absolutely not, right? People who are septic and are about to lose their foot because they have a necrotizing of fasciitis, yeah, that's a reasonable option to use. But your average person who comes into your office with maybe a little bit of a di an infected ulcer, do I necessarily need to do that? 
No, right? I can start them off on a parenteral, uh, on, a, on, on an oral agent, and that oral agent, in most cases, if it's mild, can just cover aerobic gram-positive cocci plus or minus what? MRSA. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. If it's more severe, I have to use parenteral agents. Does that kind of jive? Oh, yeah. What you want to think of, I want you guys to ask yourself this question. You can ask yourself, okay, I have somebody with a diabetic's foot infection, right? Okay, first question I'm going to ask, okay, what's my chance of MRSA? So in Sue Lookout, is my chance of MRSA pretty high? Oh, yeah. Exactly. So are we going to go with people empiric gram, uh, MRSA coverage? Yeah. So give me what I could give. I could give them something to cover aerobic gram-positive cocci, something like Keflex. Does that make sense? Plus, I could use something Sept to cover the, yeah, some, 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 cover the MRSA, like Septra, like Clinda, like Septra. Does that make sense? That could be reasonable to do that. Provided the person wasn't that sick, am I going to want to give that combination to someone who's hypotensive? No. Am I going to use them with a limb-threatening infection? No. You probably want to give them something IV. Does that kind of jive? Boom. All right. So what else am I, what else am I going to consider? Let's say that's not working, or let's say the person received antibiotics in the last month. That's a key question to ask. Did this person with diabetes receive antibiotics in the last month? Because what happens is I want everybody to think about gram negatives. The minute you get a, you're diabetic and you have a wound infection and you got antibiotics within the last month, you, you, you're at a higher chance of gram negatives. Mm -hmm. Gram negatives. What kind of grams? Grams? Negative. So does Septra cover? Well, Septra covers some gram negatives, right? But it's mostly for MRSA we're using it. Does Keflex cover much gram negatives? So what covers gram negatives? Like third generation. Third generation Keflosporins. What else? Fluoro? Quinolones. Exactly, right? Now my third thing I ask is that what are my risk factors for pseudomonas? When diabetics get pseudomonas on their skin, what are some of the associated risk factors? Well, yeah, you know, we, know, we said pseudomonas like steroids, it likes immunosuppression, it kind of likes, you know what it likes? Wet. Remember, this is not like lungs, it's like skin. So was this area, you know, is, there an, is, this, is this person known to have pseudomonas? Does that make sense? Maybe it's when they're known to have pseudomonas. Is this area exposed to a lot of moisture? Is it wet, right? Do so you have somebody with that weepy, wet thing, smells horrible? Does that make sense? Yeah. You might be thinking about pseudomonas. There are specific pseudomonas risk factors. Is that kind of jive? Mm -hmm. So this person has been on antibiotics. Think about it. What is pseudomonas like? It likes to party. And you can't party with Staph aureus. Does that make sense? You've got to kill all the Staph aureus. And what kills all the Staph aureus? Antibiotics. Does that make sense? <laughs> that makes sense. Antibiotics that don't kill you. Does that make sense? The pseudomonas. <laughs> Is everybody following so far? Oh, yeah. So you can see how we're having a whole bunch. Okay, you have this person. They're on ceftriaxone for a bit. Okay, they stopped. And all of a sudden, they have it. okay, we put them back on. You know what I mean? Oh, it's not getting back. Oh, maybe this person has been on pseudomonas. Maybe this person has pseudomonas. Every crystal clear, guys, is useful? That's how I want you guys to think about diabetic skin. And that's your kind of progression. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Let me ask you guys a question. Is that all we have to consider when I'm dealing with diabetic wounds? No, oh, there's other factors to consider. And what are some of those other factors? Do I have to consider biomechanical factors? Yes, because yes. Do I, may you have to offload these wounds? And the, actual, the answer might be... Do I have to consider, now this is important, whenever you have somebody with a diabetic wound, you need to debride. What did I say? You need to? Debride. You need to debride. Do I want to swab? Let's swab that exit and see what we get. Is that, do you want to write that in this exam? No. You're just getting a polymicrobial mess soup. You have to get, pro if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to do that, you have to get a proper specimen. Does that make sense? You need to debride the wound first and get something, a sample from the bottom of the wound. But if you're there with your little swab that you'd use to rub the back of somebody's throat to see if they have strep throat or not, which is what we're going to be talking about next, does that kind of jive? Oh, yeah. 
You're going to rub that little thing and think that you're doing something on an exudate? No, it recommends against that. You want to use it to bride and wound. And, that, and, and after you debride it, then you can get a proper sample and see if that affects your management. Remember, remember. so there's other factors to consider. Is wound care going to be important? The guideline says wound care is very important. There's biomechanical factors. There's offloading. There's wound care. Does that make sense? If this infection is deeper, so if I think this infection is an osteomyelitis or a deeper tissue, might the debridement have to be more aggressive? Might the debridement might have to involve removing some bone? Does that make sense? So who might you involve? Your general? Your general surgeon might need to be involved. Oh man, this person has a bad diabetic skin infection. I'm seeing necrosis there. Um, you look at that wound and you say, I think in a week this is going to look like a million bucks. Does that make sense? Your answer to that is kind of no. You may want to involve general surgery. You need to debride. Anything that's dead, you need to debride. If there's dead bone, you need to debride. If you see bone and it looks like it's not functioning, it's probably dead. Think about it. Let me, let me show you guys a little trick. My, the surgeon I work with showed me this trick. He said, Mike, you see a bone in someone's dead. If, if I were to take a bone right now on you guys, you guys have healthy bones. If you were to break the bone and look at the ends of it, what would you see? Little punctate areas where they show that there's blood flow. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What, do you think, what he does is he'll look at people's diabetes and he'll say, there's no flow going to that end of that bone. So is that bone alive? Probably not. So if it's dead, it needs to come. Because if you leave it in, you're just going to have a place where Pseudomonas is just going to want to party. Does that make sense? Dead bone? It loves dead bone. <laughs> you don't have to worry about any neutrophils. You know what I mean? It just it loves dead bone. Does that make sense? In- including lots of infections. So you've got to get rid of that. Is that crystal clear? Good so far? So I want to make sure that when you consider about diabetic wound care and diabetic infection management, it's more than just what antibiotic I use. It involves, can it involve vascular surgery, folks? Of course. Because I have to ask myself, wow, can this person get enough flow to the limb in order to heal up the limb? Is that going to be a good question to answer? And the answer is, that's a vital question to answer, folks. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) That's a vital question to answer. Is that crystal clear? Are we rocking? All right, let's continue. Strep throat. We're just, we're just banging these off. We just, we're, cover, we're just banging them. We're gonna, I'm gonna do like retention and sexual dysfunction in like two minutes each. Does that make sense? All right. We're going to keep on going. Okay, strep throat, guys. Tell me a little bit about what you know. Okay, under a term called pharyngitis. Most cases of pharyngitis are what? Are they bacterial or viral? They are viral. Now, your little yellow books there are going to talk about using the store throat score. Guidelines don't really recommend officially for using any score. Does that make sense? Because most of these infections are viral. What's the big complication with a, with a, with a, with, with a, with a streptococcal infection, right? Well, I can get both separative and non-separative complications. What are they? They're separative and non-separative. What are separative complications? You get consequences if the infection is the bacterial infection spreads in the back of your throat. You get a peritonsil or abscess. You get a retropharyngeal abscess. You can get a brain abscess. You can get a dural sinus thrombosis. You just basically get consequence from the infection spreading super, super bad. Does that make sense? And then I have non-separative complications. And then what's the big one you want to remember? Rheumatic? So I give people, I treat their strep throat to prevent not so much, yeah, it takes down the rate of separative infections just a little teeny baby bit. Does that make sense? But it's really to reduce the rate of rheumatic. So who gets rheumatic fever, people? People in kind of their teenage years, young 
children. Under three, it's pretty uncommon. In adults, it's pretty uncommon. Does that make sense? So usually when you get your rheumatic fever, you're usually somewhere between the ages of about three to about 15. Does that make sense? You're not going to see a 57-year-old with their first episode of rheumatic fever. Does that make sense? Very, very unlikely. All right. So you got somebody. We know that a whole bunch of viruses um, can cause it. Most of these pharyngitises are viral. What is the guideline we'll talk about? It'll say, you know what, whether you want to use a sore throat score or whatever score you want to use, that's fine. But keep in mind that most of these things are viruses. Even all these scoring systems don't really work that well. Does that make sense? All right, so um, what are some, um, we talked about with some major bugs, right? We know that adenovirus, any of the viruses that can cause a common cold can give you a sore throat, right? Uh, um, um, streptococcal infection, what am I, uh, why do I care about that? Because that is associated with rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever can kill you. Does that make sense? All right, so what am I going to do now, right? Okay, let's say I come inside, I have a sore throat, I have for a day and I have a bit of a cough, I have no fever, right? What do you think that's caused by, more of a viral or bacteria? You're going to say that's more viral. You didn't need a sore throat score to tell you and that's what it got talks about. Does that make sense? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, that's what the sore throat score is going to talk about. Is that crystal clear, folks? Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Let's say you have somebody and you're like, wow, I'm concerned that this person may have a bacterial streptococcal infection. Does that make sense? What kind of test that we always learned about? What is it called that we can do it rapid? Rapidly. I could, I could wait for a culture. Does that make sense? I could do a culture and then wait the two days for it to come back. And that can be a reasonable approach, too, because most cases of rheumatic fever, they're going to happen after, you know, as long as you get it within eight to ten days, you're usually good. Does that make sense? Right. So what do I do? I do a rapid strep test. Does that kind of jive? We've all seen that before. You're good so far? I'm just on rapid fire. Like, you're going to have to slow this down at home and listen to it again. Does that kind of jive? But everybody's following so far? All right. So what you can do, guys, is that you usually do a rapid, a, a rapid strep test. Now, the thing is, is that, remember we said in adults, rheumatic fever is pretty uncommon. Does that make sense? And in kids under three, it's pretty uncommon. Good luck trying to do the rapid strep test with a screaming three-year-old. Does that kind of jive? Um, 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 good luck trying to do the rapid strep test with a screaming uh, a three-year-old. What, what you can do is that if your rapid strep test, the problem is it's specific, but it's not sensitive. So that means if it's positive, it's good, right? You probably have strep throat, but if you're negative, you're not, that doesn't rule it out. Does that make sense? So the thing is, is that if you're an adult, remember we said if you're above 18 to 20 years of age, rheumatic fever is really common. So what they've actually said is that if your rapid strep test is positive, treat. Does that make sense? But if it's negative, you don't have to do a confirmatory culture. Does that make sense? Like you don't have to culture to confirm that it's negative. Does that make sense? Everybody following so far? If the person is younger, so if they're kind of between the ages of 3 and about 15, right? If it's positive, you can treat. But if it's negative, because they are the, that's the rate of the highest rate of rheumatic fever, what would I want to do to those negative results knowing that the rapid strep test has a poor sensitivity? What would I want to do? I want to confirm the negative with a culture. Is that crystal clear? What's my treatment, right? Let's say you decide to treat somebody. What agents can I use? Well, the guideline will recommend something like penicillin V, amoxicillin, 10 days. Does that make sense? Remember, there's a big thing now in the guideline, too, talking about recurrent streptococcal carriers. Some people just carry this bug. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right? So if you have somebody with recurrent streptococcal infections that you're swabbing their throat, how do you know they're just not a carrier and they're getting a whole bunch of viral infections? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What the guideline will talk about is that consider that that is a possibility. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Is that crystal clear? Streptococcal infections. Are we good? Well, yeah, because from what I read, like there's no point really even culturing the adult because yeah, there there's so no, many carriers. Exactly, there's so, so many carriers, and that's what they're saying. Anyways. If the rapid strep is negative, do not culture adults. Does that make sense? If the strep the strep is negative in a youth child, so what, the, what, what ages do you sorry? They've got five 